There's something out there waiting for us. And it ain't no man. Welcome to episode 16 of the Film 89 podcast. My name is Sky and I'm still the editor of Film89.co.uk and with me to my left is... Hey podcast, Neil Gaskin, good to be back. And um, joining us via Skype from Canada, it's the host of the Flixwise podcast and he's a frequent guest on the Awesome Wrong Real podcast and he's a massive friend of Film 89 and a contributor to the website, Mr. Martin Kessler. Martin, welcome back to Film 89. Thank you for having me back. I'm especially excited for this one. Yeah, episode 16, and you made your Film 89 debut, episode 3. Wasn't it back in February, I think? Uh, that sounds about right, yeah. We did, obviously, our big uh, deep dive uh, with uh, Matt Jenkins on The the, the, the Thing, uh, the 1982 John Carpenter film, and, and pretty much you know the, the Thing franchise as a whole. We've got a big treat for you in store for you tonight. We've not got just one film. We've got, well, not two, not three, but four films. We're, we're going to be talking about the franchise that began in 1987 with the John McTeen and directed Arnold Schwarzenegger starring action sci-fi classic Predator. It is a massive favourite amongst the Film 89 crew. Uh, I know Martin's a huge fan of it and the 1990 sequel, which we're going to be talking about as well. We're also going to be talking about the 2010 third film in the series Predators and, by way of our main review this week, it's going to be about Shane Black's fourth film in the franchise, not counting the AVP films, which sort of exist maybe outside of the main franchise, depending on your point of view. But our main review is going to be The Predator. So, without further ado, 1987, Predator. Martin, can you remember the first time you ever saw Predator? I think it was probably a VHS rental from the video store. <laughs> I forget exactly where and when. I, I do remember that the uh, the VHS tape had an ad for, I think, the Revenge of the Nerds sequel on it. So I just remember having to skip past this. But I, I watched it pretty young. I'm, I'm sure much younger than you're supposed to be to see a film full of that much... Uh, violence and everything but uh, I fell in love with it and I, I watched the sequel I think right around the same time it was hardly any gap this is probably uh, early to mid 90s I'd, I'd seen them both and um, I, I was a huge fan I, I still consider myself a huge fan of the first two and I, I know we're going to get into the other ones where it gets a little bit thornier if like for me it's, it's probably bigger than Star Wars personally like that that's a huge franchise for me I I think. So, Neil, obviously you and I have discussed in the years we've known each other, Predator, countless times, but when did you first see the film? I think, yeah, much like Martin, really, it was probably a trip to the uh, local video shop, and uh, again, I think, much like Martin, probably way too young to have watched it officially, but uh, I can remember being absolutely blown away by it. One particular memory I've got of it was that we had a great English teacher in our school. At uh, Christmas time, you were allowed to sort of, like, skive off the lessons and actually let us watch it. In an English lesson. In school, <laughs> In wow. school, yeah. 
There was great times when the, the, the TV had rolled out on the trolley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Mr. Smith, the tracking's off. Oh, yeah, yeah, two seconds. Just just jam a pencil in and give I it think, a twist. I, I think it was. I'm pretty sure, if memory serves, I'm probably garnishing the tale to make it sound even cooler than it actually was, but I'm pretty sure one of the boys had brought it in. It was a pirated copy as well. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> see, see my mention of uh, like VHS players and tracking, and you know, our, our younger listeners are not going to have a clue what we're talking about. <laughs> But yeah, my, you know, my own um, first experience with a film which I've mentioned, well, countless times now on the podcast I've been on, the, I think most frequently on the last episode where I was talking to um, Gary Smart, the, the maker of, of RoboDoc, because um, the first time I ever saw Predator was, uh, I think it was a day, I, I think I'd been maybe unwell, and my mum and dad had left me in the house uh, for a couple of hours with, and my, my dad had strategically positioned two VHS tapes from the, the, the video rental store on the coffee table and sort of nodded towards them as he left left the house. And as soon as they went, and you know, I opened them, and lo and behold, it was Robocop and Predator. I think this was probably late 88, early 89. Um, I think I was, I was 12 years old at the time, and it was sort of a baptism of fire. It was the first time I'd seen uh, films as graphically violent as that. I, I'm pretty yeah, pretty sure that was sort of my introduction into, you know, hard R-rated, you know, 80s action films. It's probably the greatest day of your life. Oh, it was, yeah. Obviously it was, your wife didn't want to hear that, but oh, yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, was, it, it was certainly, um, it, it left an impression, you know, as I, I'm sure everyone's bored of hearing now, Robocop is my all-time favorite film. The Predator is probably, um, you know, if you put a gun to my head and got me to reel off my all-time ten favorite films, I, I, I'd be lying to myself if I didn't put Predator in that list. It is just, it, it's just a film that anytime it comes on TV, and this is a cliche that, you know, I, as I'm saying it, it sounds cliche, but I, I have to watch it. They're films which I'm incredibly familiar with, like Star Wars, uh, like Robocop, which when they come on TV, I don't have to watch them, but there's something about predator that every time it comes on no matter how far into the film it is if, if i'm channel surfing i just have to watch it yeah this it's gonna be honest it's one of those films as well sometimes you can almost sort of overwatch a film to find that every time i watch this i don't get jaded by it no. you know even, no. even though i know exactly what's going to be said next or what's going to happen next you never get jaded from watching this film yeah I, i'm exactly the same there's something inexhaustible about i think the first one it's it's so elusive. I, I think the way it, it shifts the genre, I find really fascinating about it too. Like, it starts off like an action film, like a, almost like a commando, or you know that that type of '80s action film with the meanest, toughest guys in Hollywood. And they go into the jungle, and then you know you have that spectacular opening action sequence when they attack the base in the first act, and then it shifts in the second act into almost like a slasher film, you know, they're being picked off one by one. And, you know, the genre changes, but it, it's so effortless, this tonal shift, and you, you're completely along for the ride, and it pulls you into this dark territory. And by the third act, it, it changes again. It's not even really a horror film. It's this primal sort of experience watching uh, Schwarzenegger revert back to like a, a caveman and, you know, using his wits to overcome this uh, intelligent creature that's hunting him for sport. You know, going back to you know 1987, it, it was John McTiernan's second film, I believe. I think his first film was um, it was like a horror thriller film called Nomads with Pierce Brosnan in 1986, a film that I'm vaguely aware of. I, 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 I can't recall if I've seen it or not. But you know, Predator was John McTiernan's second you know proper theatrical film. Looking back on it now, as directors often find with that difficult second film. It looks like it's made by a pro. As much as granted, yeah, you know, in the, in the first sort of act of the film, I think it kind of purposely lulls you into a false sense of security. It's, it's a Joel Silver produced action film from the 80s. You know, the, the poster doesn't give much away. 
you know, it doesn't show, thankfully, the alien, you know, as far as I've seen on the first trailers that, that were released in like late 86, early 87. And then you, you're just sort of, if you're along for the ride, you, you sat there thinking, yeah, this is just a, you know, another Arnold Schwarzenegger action film. You know, you'd had, you know, uh, Commando in 85, I think Raw Deal in 86. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always think that The Running Man should have come out before this film, just based on, on the actual quality of the film, and this would have been like a step up from the Running Man. But yeah, it's actually, it's a step the, back, isn't it? I think the Running Man actually came out after Predator, if I'm uh, if I'm right. I think so. I just the other week I, I showed my girlfriend Commando, and that was a big hit. And then I said, "Oh, we should put on Running Man." And I, I think like Running Man, it, it's maybe more fun to think of than to actually watch. We, we maybe put it on too late. She started nodding off. Uh, but like, I, I think yeah, it feels like that one should have come maybe before this, but uh, you still have people carrying over like Jesse Ventura showing up in The Running Man so that there's a little connection to The Predator. Like it seemed like, you know, it was almost like, uh, not a theatrical troupe, but, it, you know, it was common to see these actors and uh, crew kind of bumping into each other on another project or other projects. Like, of course, uh, Bill Dukes in Commando also with Schwarzenegger. And, you know, you find these little connections throughout their careers. Yeah, and you know the films are also sort of linked by that. Um, I don't know if anyone who follows Stephen E. D'Souza, the uh, I think he was one of the writers on Die Hard, and um, you know a load of other Joel Silver action classics from the eighties and early nineties. But you know Stephen E. D'Souza has he's openly acknowledged that Commando, uh, Predator, Die Hard, Die Hard Two, and also the Denzel Washington action film from ninety one Ricochet, they all exist within the same sort of universe because there's a few common threads throughout, and one of those is the the, the fictional South American country of Valverde, which uh, which appears in both Commando and I think Die Hard Two. It is yeah, yeah, the, uh, disposed, yeah. Uh, deposed uh, dictator, yeah, 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 the general, uh, the general. Um, yeah, it's, it's from Valverde. Yeah. So the, yeah, there's like a sort of you know whether that's an afterthought, but, but there's definitely a feel that these films all sort of exist in in, in the same universe. Mm-hmm. So it was made uh, on, on for a budget of fifteen million dollars, which back then you know that that was sort of a medium budget film. Eighty seven, the same year, Robocop, I think, was made for around about thirteen million. Yeah, where, but I would imagine it's around the time where Schwarzenegger is starting to command yeah. big big paychecks. Yeah. Now. I think as much as in terms of quality, I think a lot of people might say The Predator is one of Arnie's best films, but I, I don't think you know Arnie's sort of star had reached his peak ascendancy by that point. I, I would say personally, 91 with Terminator 2, I think at that point Arnold Schwarzenegger was at the peak of his career. But I think Predator was certainly one of the films that sort of boosted him. You know, he I think it was the first film where he was taken more seriously than films like Conan the Barbarian and certainly Commando um, Two years before, yeah, it's quite str- it's quite strange when we look back at uh, sort of Schwarzenegger's career because, like you say, when you start with the, the sort of Conan films, and it's only after really then that he sort of goes into the sort of generic sort of eighties action mm. with, like you say, Commando, which sort of pokes fun at itself along the way, but still yeah. takes itself slightly seriously. And then you've got things like Raw Deal, which nowadays would be almost a sort of straight to Netflix type oh, film, yeah. wouldn't they? Yeah. Um, yeah, Martin, obviously you say you've, you've watched Running Man recently. Um, I, I did the same about a year ago and I was expecting to be really disappointed uh, you know, having not watched it for years. And I actually found it, it, it's probably the most I've enjoyed the film. Uh, I'd okay. go, go the other way, to be honest. Yeah? Uh, yeah, with my son's uh, discovery of uh, all things Arnold now. Mm. Obviously, Commander was the, the starting point for him, then Predator. 
And then when we got to Running Man, I was always sort of making apologies for it before it even began and really disappointed on yeah. the mm. 18th viewing or whatever it is, but yeah. I haven't seen it for so many years. Now, Raw Deal, on the other hand, from 86, uh, I just have never been a big fan of that film at all. But it has got one, no. of the best, one of the best catchphrases of all time. You should not drink and bake. <laughs> again I, I can't even recall anything memorable from the film although uh, Schwarzenegger like his acting in Predator he does I, I think take it up a notch like you know he'd already proved that he could be charismatic and uh, you know deliver comic lines but I, I feel like his acting in Predator is a little bit more nuanced than some of the preceding films he, he talks about that scene where he'd just come down the waterfall and he gets covered in mud and saying he wanted to play it like the character's afraid like he's right about to die and you know I feel like there's more going on in his performance in, in Predator than maybe some of the other films where he's just a generic action man you know you feel him mourning the death of his team or you feel him being betrayed by uh, Carl Weathers character Dylan like you know that there's sort of a dynamicism to his performance that I think shows that there is still room for him to grow as an actor and that he wasn't just uh, you know one, one trick muscle man yeah, no, Neil and I have, you know, we, we've discussed the, you know, the career of Schwarzenegger, uh, well, to death. Really. And Nottingham, yeah. Yeah, and uh, for, for me, without doubt, Predator is, is Arnold Schwarzenegger's, it's his best performance. Yeah, I, I think so. Like like Marty was saying, he does definitely take it a lot more seriously. And it's only really sort of like the two sort of throwaway lines he has, that, you know, the stick around and the knock-knock. Yeah. Other than that, it's not, because you sort of almost accept with Arnie, you're going to get cheesy lines thrown in throughout the action, don't we? It's only really that part there. The rest of the film is played very straight for him. Yeah, yeah. I, I right. think I think the quips and the, you know the typical Arnie one-liners, which you know by that point it certainly begin to begin to define him as an action star, are literally kept to a minimum and and mostly within that action scene where they they, they attack the compound. It's mostly in the first third, and I, I feel like it's almost deliberate to lull you into a false sense of familiarity, security. You know, they're spouting off one-liners, and then you know when things take that serious turn, drastic turn the jokes drop off and you can kind of engage with the film in a more serious way. It feels like uh, maybe unlike a, a certain film we're going to be talking about <laughs> later, you know, the, the predator or predator. Sorry. I keep, it's like the, the Facebook, just Facebook. It's cleaner, <laughs> but predator, it knows when to stop joking around and tell you, okay, we're going to take this seriously. You can too. And it sort of makes it okay to, you know, engage with the film on that level and think about it and not just sort of dismiss it as a uh, fluff. You know, if they were still making the same sort of puns and jokes, you know, after Jesse Ventura gets his chest blown open, you know, like after moments like that, I, I think it would deflate the tension of the film. It would undermine its own purpose you know instead you have uh, really fantastic scenes like you know bill duke's character mac uh, reflecting on the time he spent together with uh, blaine just Ventura's character being the only two coming out of the jungle it's very emotional and serious and you know shows a, a, a kind of progression in what the film is while you're watching it that I, I think is very effective and endearing and interesting you know <laughs> Yeah, you know, looking back to um, Commando in '85, you've got that scene where um, Arnie's facing off against Bill Duke's character, and they're having a fist fight in the motel, and, and Ray Dawn Chong is is, is watching it as they you know exchange. Yeah, and she yes. goes, "I can't believe this macho bullshit." And yes. you know that that sort of mentality and that sort of approach to things is is something the Predator takes. I think certainly in in the first quarter, but I think it's it's doing that knowingly. 
it, it's fully self-aware. In some ways, it's a deconstruction of, of this sort of macho figure. And yeah. uh, John McTiernan would take that further with Die Hard, which people forget now that the sequels have kind of uh, taken it into another direction. But the first Die Hard, the, the kind of point was, oh, you know, it's not an invincible action hero. It's just a regular guy. And that was actually refreshing at the time. And, you know, it's sort of weird when you watch uh, like Invincible Bruce Willis in Die Hard uh, 4 or whatever. But going back and watching that first film, it was actually... You know, it comes across like a response to all these 80s action films, not uh, the, the pinnacle of it. You know, it's actually subverting what was common at the time, what was cliche at the time. So I think Predator, it's actually building up to that in certain ways as well. By, you know, first of all, like it, it delivers like the best version of an 80s action movie when they storm that compound and then you know of course it twists it and adds on to it and you know subverts your expectations in a way that's very exciting because it has something better to offer you know i think the uh the whole subverting expectations thing i've been hearing about some other films lately like i, I think it's it's great if you have something better to offer than what your expectations were i think you're right because i say with the, the compound bit it's almost the sort of tip, atypical sort of 80s action film where the good guys, you know, for some reason just are immune to getting shot. <laughs> you know, I think, and then even when one does, I think it's Blaine in it, Jesse Ventura. Yeah, he's, he ain't got time to bleed. But even when you see the, the bullet wound there, it's a little sort of shoulder shot, it's just yeah. glanced off. You know, it's very generic sort of action film. And like you say, from then on, it builds up to a completely different type of feeling, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that um, the, the film does best. Like you say, Martin, it's sort of like. Um, it's like a deconstruction of the of the 80s action film. You know, the film starts off, you, you're introduced to Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's like a man mountain and you know, with his invincible team of of, of killer machines. Most famous handshake in movie history. Oh, but yeah, I without doubt. Say, how, how could we not have mentioned that? Yeah, so 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 ha- hands up everyone listening who's who's used or seen, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Carl Weathers handshake gif, you know, on, on Twitter or Facebook. It's it's gotta be the most popular gif um I think out there. Hands up who's done that to Carl Weathers. Yeah, you know, I think what it does perfectly, it, it sets up this team as being invincible, and, and they all look the way the way they operate. Even with Carl Weathers, who you know he's he's now with the CIA, he's sort of branched off more into the intelligence side of things. But apart from you, know, the little bit where he he nearly gives their position away, and, and Mac very quickly puts him uh, you know back in line. They they're highly disciplined, highly trained. You know, they're like ghosts. They go in, they do their job. You know they 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 wipe everyone out. They they get the job done and then they're away. You know I think you you expect that from them. They, they, they the way they look. You know the fact they're armed to the teeth. You've got people like Jesse Ventura who you know crying out loud. He's he's carrying a minigun. <laughs> I, you know, I, I was thinking about this um, just before we recorded. We, we we've seen countless times now in video games um, and, and you know and films. And Arnie would do it again himself in 1991 in Terminator 2. People carrying a minigun. You know, an, an, an assault cannon that usually would be attached to the side of a Bell Huey helicopter in Vietnam. You know, the, the things weigh a ton. They're, it's one of the most completely impractical weapons ever devised. If I was, I think, something like 5,000 rounds per minute, you, you'd need... You need like a truckload of, of belt loaded bullets, you know, behind you in, you know, in order to shoot anyone down for any length of time. But... It looks cool. It looks... <laughs> it, you know, it looks incredible. And, you know, when, when you're a 12-year-old kid and, you know, as I'm talking, I was a 41 year old man. It still has exactly the same effect on me when he when he takes the, the canvas bag off, old painless, and says payback time. It's just you know, it's just absolutely incredible. 
And the, the main thing I think that first act gets so well is it very quickly smacks them down to earth in a way that you've never seen in an action film before is when, you know, they find the strung up skin corpses of Jim Harper's men. And it, it, it silences them. You know, you've got that perfect reaction from Poncho when he says, holy mother of God. And, you know, I think it was Blaine that says, is it ain't no way for no soldier to die? Yeah. It, it's it's just like straight away they they dealt with something or, or they're dealing with something that is out of their comfort zone. Well, I think even with Hawkins, I think he comes up with why would they skin them alive? Yeah, the, the, the gorilla yeah. skinned them. Yeah. Why would they skin them? As if you know, it's yeah. said, like they've never experienced That's anything right. like this. Yeah, yeah they, they've dealt with all sorts of bad, all sorts of messed up stuff, but never something this brutal and, and sort of like butchery on this this level. And and observing like the um, the the way that the team was shooting saying well they were shooting in every direction they didn't hit anything you know it's very eerie it's almost like i, I think of the uh john carpenter's the thing you know when they go to the norwegian base and you sort of see the aftermath and it, it kind of puts something in your in your imagination and then eventually it, it happens in the film like it's sort of similar in predator where you know it's a very creepy eerie seeing oh they, they were shooting in all directions and didn't hit anything and these men were skinned alive and then of course that happens not so far into the film afterwards when you have that uh, great mow down the jungle scene but uh, i guess they don't realize the predators climbing in the trees so they don't they do hit it actually but it's it's like a, a flesh wound yeah it's a great bit of uh, foreshadowing you know that whole early sequence to see these men scared you know that like at that point in the film when they're just shooting sort of panicky like you know some some of them like schwarzenegger keep their cool but bill duke's scared you know like that that's it's sort of shaking as an audience member to see yeah and you know going back earlier into the film as well they, they, one of my favorite openings to any film um, as far as opening credits and title sequences go, is Predator. If, if you look at the second film, and then, as we'll come on to later, The Predator, you know, the most recent one, they, they, they're quite brash and loud and noisy openings. With, with Predator 2, you've got that big, you know, in, in the now famous Predator font, you know, the Predator 2 writing. You go back to the first film, and it's a very quiet opening. You've got, you know, you've got the Starfield, and Alan Silvestri's music very subtly sort of, you know, builds up, and then you've got predator in a very basic you know white on black typeface and, and it's all very much very very much reminiscent of the opening to john carpenter's the thing but mm -hmm. very atmospheric and then you go into the you know the the more bombastic music when we see you know the guys landing you know, in in valverde on the helicopters but that, but that initial opening where we see the predator spaceship eject that you know the pod onto earth it's just so atmospheric and that is something that's picked up in, in a very you know opening scene and carried through to the very end of the film it's got an incredible sense of atmosphere to it and as we're going to come to when we're talking about later films i don't think any of the films in the rest of the series have, have replicated the atmosphere as well i think predator 2 is the one that comes the closest well i, I think predator 2 kind of creates its own atmosphere yeah. which feels a little bit distinct and that's probably because it can't replicate it it knows the smart thing to do is i'm going to do something a little bit different you know it has kind of its own feel to it and i i think like you know predators of course setting it in the jungle setting and having like a, a team like that it's trying to kind of replicate that tone that atmosphere and it just you know it feels like a shoddy imitation of it obviously then you've got you know, the reason they're there is, um, I think, some CIA operatives uh, have gone missing in the middle of the jungle. So Dylan, who is now 
you know, we find out working for the CIA, enlists the help of Dutch, who you know seems their old friends from whatever unit they used to be part of. I think it's I think it's Vietnam, isn't it? Because the he shows a lighter on the on the chopper. He says Dutch got one too. Yeah, I think it's some sort of like airborne sort of Green Berets. Yeah, thing. yeah, but you know, either, either way, I think they, you know, they they've certainly got a history together. They, they you know they, they they were friends at one point. Yeah, you mentioned seventy two as well, so it probably yeah. is Vietnam. Yeah, well, yeah, it would be Vietnam then, and you know, clearly, you know, Blaine and Macca and and you know the, the rest of them, they you know they. Maybe not Hawking so much. I think he may have been a bit too young, but they're yeah. certainly Vietnam veterans. Uh, you know, in the majority, and then you've got you've got the attack on the com- on the compound, which again it's all very much typical sort of eighties action. I think it was directed by that action scene was directed by Craig Baxley, and he was the director of uh, we, we we've mentioned on a previous podcast, Dark Angel, Dark Angel, oh, the um, for oh. international listeners. I come in peace, I come yeah. In peace. The, the, the Dolph Lundgren, Dolph Lundgren, yeah, with the killer CDs, yeah. and I believe it was also. <laughs> Brian Bosworth's Stone Cold as well, wasn't it? Stone Cold, yeah, starring um, <laughs> Brian Bosworth. God, again, you know, for, for people not familiar with their early '90s action films, uh, two films that you definitely need to check out. But yeah, you know, it it, it very much has that sort of A team vibe with the the way that the you know the grenade launchers are blowing guys out of um, you know treetop turrets and stuff. And, and it, it the good guys are getting their feet shot at. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it, it, it's very much generic action but i think every little bit of that is done with a purpose to lull you into a false sense of security because you know as we later find out strange things are afoot they're, they're in way over their heads the, the bit i've always got with that as well does does dylan actually know there's something like a predator out there what was the sort of because he's obviously setting dutch's crew up yeah but is it to find out what the predator is or is it a you know, they never really explain that no, you know I, he's, you know he's setting him up for something yeah I, i've never got that impression that, that that dylan had any idea that there was an alien creature out there because he's the one you know, i think your know, arnie you know, the, the penny drops with him far earlier he knows that there is you know as, as billy says something out there waiting for us and it ain't no man and i think arnie's very sort of he's one of the first to sort of understand that that this is something else entirely but i don't think dylan is no I say there's, there's, something, there's something going on there where he's obviously set him up, hmm. you know, to well, get in the false pretenses, isn't there? But I don't think it's to hunt down an alien, is it? No, no. I think he, um, like, the way he pitched it to Dutch and his team is that it's a rescue mission when really it, it was more like a retrieval of information and perhaps even a assassination mission. You know, it, it's sort of usual CIA yeah. <laughs> shenanigans in Central or South American countries that really went on, you know. So mm. Schwarzenegger's character, Dutch, you know, he tried to have some sort of moral code that no, we're just going in to save this, you know, we're a rescue team, right? We're not assassins. And then uh, Dylan, you know, basically manipulates them. So, like, I think that's where that. I was going to uh, say, because Dylan sort of picked. Dylan sort of picks up a few sheets of paper, doesn't he, from like a filing cabinet? He's like, "This yep. is gold. We've got yeah. it." <laughs> it's like, yeah, like this, this, this is more than we ever hoped to get. Yeah. Like this, is like a guerrilla group, but like they're very good at filing. They yeah, keep, yeah, they're yeah. keeping their documents well yeah. filed. <laughs> we move on then to the you know the first time that the predator makes himself known to them is when he kills Shane Black. Yeah. Shane Black, obviously the you know the the director of the fourth film we'll be talking about, the, the Predator. He's also the director of Iron Man 3. He was the writer of Lethal Weapon. I think he did the original script for Lethal Weapon. Yeah, the original yeah. script. And I think um your rumour has it that as much as this uh, the first film was written by Jim and John Thomas, um I think um some some latest script reworks were unofficially done by Shane Black. I think that's why they brought I, I think, they yeah. brought him on for that reason, didn't they? Yeah. Am I, am I, am I, Basically just to punch up the dialogue and like you can sort of hear where his dialogue comes in you know some of these punchlines or you know witticisms that it sounds very Shane Black oh, definitely yeah 
his own jokes, of course, sound very much like a mm. Shane Black dialogue. I'm, I'm sure he wrote his own jokes. Uh, the, <laughs> the one that cracks Billy up is pretty, pretty lewd, but yeah. it's just great seeing, like, the, you know, Billy, who's this totally serious, serious-looking guy, lose it laughing over such a dumb joke. <laughs> yeah, if, if we can put a pin in this one, because I think this one's going to... This certain point is going to come up later. That little aspect of Hawkins' character with, with the lube jokes, which, you know, he's trying to get Billy to laugh, you know, that works within what we know about this team. Billy's very serious, very stoic. Hawkins is pretty much, you know, the, the sort of nervous joker of the group. And it, it works perfectly. And as much as we spend very little time with this team, it's a testament to the writing and the performances and the direction that we just know enough about them to endear us to their characters. So by the first time one of them gets killed, we start to feel a little bit of a pinch. And certainly mm-hmm. by the time Blaine gets killed, we're thinking, you know, I really like this guy. He's got a physical presence. He's got bags of charisma. He's got that kick-ass minigun, and now he's just had his MTV chest. MTV shirt, yeah, yeah, and, yeah the MTV <laughs> shirt. And I, you know, I always remember feeling a, a little bit of a sting for when he, you know, he gets his chest blown out. Oh, and, for sure. You know, yeah. it, it, it's it's not a very honourable death. He got sort of shot from behind. There's that bizarre moment which I, I've yet to work out. And Martin, I don't know if you can help me here. He sees some sort of creature. I don't I don't know what it is in the jungle, mm-hmm. and then. Something sort of hits him, like it looks like a like blood or guts. I think yeah, it's, I think he's and then he turns around and gets and gets and, shot. And gets yeah. shot. I what I I've watched this so many times, and I had the same question because it's such a peculiar moment. What I assumed is that the predator maybe blasted that creature first, yeah. or fired one shot that just kind of winged him, and you know it was so quiet he didn't even really register. And then he turns around and gets hit for real, you know. And then they talk about like the, the scorching on the. Bones, you know, it's um, yeah, the wounds being the wounds sort of plasma weapon, yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I assume it was just like a, two shots. The first one wasn't that wasn't dead on, and maybe it just winged him or hit that little yeah, maybe that he, yeah. he kicked over in the log. But uh, I've, I've always taken it that perhaps the predator, being sort of like as we see in the later films as well, quite a noble hunter, is giving him a chance to turn around, so he sort of give, you know misses the first shot to get Blake to turn around, you maybe know? yeah just to get his attention, maybe yeah, you know yeah so making be. a fair fight, you know. That, that's a good good point, yeah. And then obviously we've got again um, a, a gift that's been used quite you know countless times is that one of um, I think James Hancock he was recently himself uh, on, on Wrong Wheel when he did the episode in eighties action films. It's when you've got Arnie and and Bill Duke and the rest of them just stood there, just mowing down the jungle after Blaine gets yeah, killed. Yeah. And, and for me, you know that 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 scene, you've got the build up of Alan Silvestri's music, which we'll come to in a minute. It, you know the score is incredible, but he drops the score at the perfect moment when when Mac picks up the when minigun. I, it, it just you sort of realize how crazy it is, and yeah. then he's just shooting with no no bullets. It's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a pure you know it's a testosterone filled moment, but again it's one of my favourite moments in the film, and it just lo- it looks so awesome. Like Arnie's expression as he's firing off that you know that M sixteen, and you know it, it, it's incredible. And you know well, they play a straight as well. They I mean, do. They, 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 they do. See them reloaded, and you know yeah it's, yeah it's, they reload and keep going. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. yeah. And then you like it's the first point in the film where they're not in control anymore. You know that's sort of a big turning point. And that's what it's doing. It's, it's 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 building them up as these superhuman killing machines, and then it's stripping them down, you know, both figuratively and metaphorically, because that's what this creature's doing. He is hunting them one by one, and he's taking down these superhumans. It, 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 as we later find out, 
you know, it comes to the planet every you know couple of years as, as is established in Predator 2 and, and hunts you know the, the, the greatest that our species has to offer and Arnie's men you know look, look at Arnie himself the, you know the peak of human fitness you know the, the guy just looks you know he is the Terminator isn't he and you know when you when you chuck the likes of, uh, of Sonny Landham and um, Jesse Carl Ventura Weathers. and Carl Weathers into the mix there they are an incredible team and he just is able to take them apart but and again, this is something I'd like to put a pin in because we're going to come to this certainly in later films. The Predator is also shown to be vulnerable because we mm-hmm. see that you know he gets nicked by one of the bullets when, um, I think, is it a poncho finds some of the blood. Everything that's set up in relation to the Predator, his abilities, his strengths, and, you know, as we see with his vision, that's later exploited one of his weaknesses. It establishes the character as being yes, he is otherworldly, but he is also fallible, and he is you know there there is yes. a chance. You, you you've also got the fact that you know going back to what you were saying about Arnold Schwarzenegger's performance. As soon as his men start to get picked off, it seems to be something that's completely alien to him. Yeah, there's no doubt he would have lost men before, but you know going into such a simple job and then finding themselves you know finding your know, good friends of his decimated. He's trying to hold things together. He, he's almost like a father figure because there's one scene where he's trying to quietly sort of um, keep Poncho to, to reassure him. And he sort of gives him a pat on the back as he's walking past him and then and, and smiles. And then he just literally, as, as Poncho walks past, he's got this steely look on his face as if he's thinking, yeah, yeah I, you know, I, I've told him things are going to be fine, but things are not going to be fine. Something that, you know, is, is majorly wrong here. Yeah, I think it's Lee's taking, you know, they say he is the, the leader of the gang anyway, isn't he? But, you know, it, I think he, they say he takes responsibility as well for almost coercing him through it, doesn't he? Yeah, he does, yeah. One of the the key things about this film, which has always stood out for me, is the creature designer, the predator. Martin, obviously, you're, you're a massive fan of of, oh, yeah. of the likes of The Thing, which we you know, we talked in, in, the, in yes. the episode we did on The Thing, we talked at length about the, you know, the sort of unique biology of The Thing and the, and the genius behind the, you know, the creation of that. What do you think of Stan Winston's creature design of the Predator? It's incredible, especially because it's a humanoid form. I, I think to make something like that stand out, you know, take some something really special, you know, to, you know, you've seen so many aliens that are guys in rubber suits, basically, that to make something feel real and distinct like that takes a little bit of extra design work, imagination, talent, you know, like a, a lot of it, I think comes down to Kevin Peter Hall's performance too. His physical performance as the Predator's really mind-blowing. I've seen so many films where it's just like the monster's a guy stumbling around sort of awkwardly and you can kind of tell he can't see. Like, you never get that sense watching him and the Predator. And it's funny that initially it was going to be Jean-Claude Van Damme before they redesigned the creature. But, you know, there's a moment where um, when the Predator is just jumping, I I think after he almost... uh, kills Schwarzenegger by the waterfall and he sort of gives up looking for him and he sort of leaps from one rock to another and it's so assured and confident that uh, you know like it it never feels like this is anything but something real it's a living creature and of course that great reveal when it takes the mask off because the the helmet design is very simple elegant I know there was a different design initially the I think they call it the, the Gort mask which basically uh, they recycled in Predator 2 but um, you know the fact that it's such a simple elegant kind of design you know gives you a sense of this creature's aesthetics and then when it removes it and you see its face with these mandibles it's just that extra bit of something alien to really you know feel like you're satisfied when you wanted to know what's under that mask in the first place 
Yeah, it's also, you know, you've got, you say about the simplicity, but then you've also got the, the accessories of the Predator comes with. And, you know, you've, you've, you've got things that marks him out as different, that makes him look unlike any other creature you've seen before. You've got, you've got the dreadlocks, which, yeah. you know, are they, what are they? Are they, they're not here. They're, they're something else entirely. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually. They're like tendrils. Use, yeah, it's something Maybe. I mean, if it was of. hair, it would be like a, a yeah. mammal. It sort of gives yeah. it this reptilian quality. But, like, just the fact that it's drawing on elements of, like, you know, maybe like Rastafarian design influences, maybe like pre Columbian, like, it, it just gives it this sort of different quality than some, you know, some of the other science fiction creatures. Like, it, it makes it stand out. And, you know, if it has dreadlocks, then that means it has a sense of um, it, like it, just looking at it, you get a sense that this is a creature that has a sense of ritual just by the way it handles its tools, by the way it looks, you know, like it's not a symmetrical sort of battle armor. It, you know, it's uh, armor. It's designed more for um, some sort of aesthetic appeal. Like it, it's not covering every part of it. It's like it's almost it, like there's a, a ceremonial sort of tribal type. Yeah, there, there's, there, yeah. there's a ceremonial quality to it. Like, you know, in Predator 2, you find out that it's basically a tribal creature and, you know, it sort of rebuffs your idea of like the, um, oh, it's the, the advanced, technologically advanced alien in the silver suit. You know, it, it's saying that, you know, maybe something that's technologically more advanced than us, it isn't actually aligned with our ideas of what, uh, you know, the progress of civilization is, that it's actually in some ways... Um, it's still a hunt. You know, what, what certain people would call, yeah, like it, it's still tribal, it's still ritualistic, it's... These things are not independent of, uh, or, you know, maybe they're independent of uh, technological progress, that you could be an advanced alien species and still be tribal, still have an emphasis on ritual, on uh, ceremony, you know, that all these things are actually important, that they're not something that gets dropped off the more your technology advances. So, like, just in that way, I find it a kind of thought-provoking creature in the way it's designed, in the way it's, like, you know, it's a, an alien creature with an anthropology which yeah, that's right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah, we talked on our episode about the thing about the what we learn about the biology of the of the alien organism, you know, whatever you want to call it. But outside of that, we know nothing about it. Whereas, you know, as is established certainly in the first two Predator films, we learn, you know, a lot more about this alien than you usually would. I think there's a lot more depth to him because you you learn about his species about the fact that you know they are hunters you know to get you know to go by the original title of what predator was going to be called originally is is hunter because you know that's what it is and uh, you know again, again pin, pin, pin number three which is something which yeah. comes up in you know the, the most recent <laughs> film you know they actually sort of you know pull apart the use of the word predator because a predator hunts prey for you know for food whereas a hunter right. hunts for trophies for, for trophies for sport so i think right. you know hunter is certainly you know the more accurate term but yeah i i think there's no doubt is one of the greatest creature designs you're absolutely right kevin peter hall's performance is is, is phenomenal um you know he, he would turn up again in predator 2 unfortunately then in 1991 i believe he was in uh, i think a car accident and he died he, quite yeah. young um, well yeah he i think it was very soon after he had a blood transfusion as a result of the injuries he, he sustained he was very unfortunate then that the blood transfusion was infected with uh, hiv and he very quickly developed aids and died i think on april 10th 1991 so yeah, yeah. A really tragic end to his life there and you can definitely feel his difference in, in the later films i mean you know some of the things he comes up with like i you know was rewatching predator 2 not that long ago and uh when he decloaks in front of uh, king willie and he's walking and he has this sort of 
swagger he's swinging his arms i I was thinking like uh, how do you even come up with that like that this uh, creature should look completely relaxed and have its arms just kind of swinging like it it feels so different from you know what you'd expect or the the way he moves the head of the creature that you know the predator uh, to give a sense that it, it's um, you know not not sniffing but that it's it's trying to sense yeah. what's around it you know it, it gives yeah. it this otherworldly mm. quality just through the performance which I, I think is really extraordinary. And, and one of the things you picked up on, Martin, in in the the Predator Two article that you wrote for Film Eighty Nine, is the fact that Kevin Peter Hall's performance across the two films is different, and that Predator yes. in the second film, I think he is a lot more younger. He's uh, he seems a lot more confident, but at the same time, a little bit more. He, he's more of a juvenile predator, yeah, more than, cocksure, yeah, cocksure, yeah. And yeah. again, somehow that comes across in in Kevin Peter Hall's physical performance. And and again, it's, it, everything about that first film just falls together perfectly. You know, I, I spoke at length recently about you know Robocop, and uh, not to go over old ground again, but I. You know, I've, t- I've tried to think of a scene I could remove from that film uh, and, and try and improve it, and I don't think there is one. And again, I think a film like Predator, th- there's no fat on the meat. It, it kicks along at a cracking pace. You know, it's not the longest film. I think is it an hour and yeah, it's, a, it's 147 minutes, so it's less than two hours, but it just moves along at such a cracking pace. It's beautifully edited. It, it's just this. I mean, I've talked about it before, where like you can kind of pick on Hollywood films and say, oh no, like I'd, I'd stick to the art house stuff or international films, but then like when the Hollywood machine is working, when everyone's doing their job, when they're at the top of their craft. There's nothing else like it, you know. I, I think to see the level of craft behind every aspect of the film, it's really something special. That you know, it is a work of art. I, I think people can kind of say, ah, you know, they're just dumb fun. They're just you know, whatever punching alien jokey movies. But like to me, they're not. You know, so it's it is something special. We can't talk about Predator without talking about Alan Silvestri's score. And back last year when um, James Hancock and I did the Blade Runner episode for Wrong Wheel, one of the things I meant to talk about Blade Runner is, I don't think, you know, we, we didn't give enough uh, um, attention and credit to Van Gallis's score, but aside from that, you've got the fact that the score and the sound design for Blade Runner are, are just inseparable. They work together perfectly. Much of the score of that film seems to be sort of like, you know, background foley and, and percussion that's worked into the score. And I think exactly the same thing is done in Predator. You've got these sort of, you know, they sound like crickets and you've got, they sound like monkeys in the distance and birds, but they're all they're all part of the actual music of the film. Like as if, mm-hmm. you know, the, the whole film has got like a beating heart and Sylvester's score, yes. um, you know, I, I've listened to it this afternoon before recording. Um, it is just magnificent. It's so far above what a standard score for such a film as this, you know, an action sci-fi film from the 80s would be. I think if, if you listen to some of Sylvester's other stuff in particular, there's similarities between this score and his, his work on the Back to the Future films. If you listen to the bit where just before the the attack on the compound where Arnie is putting the explosive in the back of the truck there's a little cue of music which is so similar to some of the music from uh, Back to the Future 2. I I don't mean that as anything of a criticism but he is use use of percussion and pauses in in the the tempo it's just phenomenal and yeah, and he's very good at sort of motifs in a film. Yes, as well. that's I mean, right. Yeah, if you notice, like the sort of Back to the Future, you always have that sort of like ring and bell sort of noise that comes through whenever something's changing. 
they do it in a similar way here where when you get a, a character in panic every time it goes to that beaded sort of jungle drum yeah. and you get the sort of um, parallel shot on your yeah. the top like it's like the predator himself has got his own sort of yes. little tribal drum beat music and then you've got the the pathos music of when a character gets killed like when um, you know uh, Mac is is recounting his, his experiences with you know Jesse Ventura in combat and talking about him you know yeah, the sort of the bugle salute sort of, yeah, yeah that's right yeah yeah, it's you know it's an absolutely r- remarkable film. For me, it's definitely one of my top ten favorite films of all time. I, I you know I, I think I'd be I'd be lying to myself if I tried to say otherwise. I think it's a film that's far smarter than than people gave it credit for at the time, and I think it's a film that has sort of garnered like a snowball effect of praise over the years. Much like films which weren't uh, hugely popular at the time, like The Thing, mm-hmm. is now extremely highly regarded. And as, and as much as um, you know, Predator was a decent hit. I think it. I think it, it pulled in about sixty million on a on a budget of fifteen million, so it was a decent hit. I know it made a shed load more on you know, home video rental sales. It, it, it was a hit for Arnie, but I don't think you know critically at the time. Certainly, if you look at um, you know the, the oh, you do, Siskel and Ebert were ripping it a new yeah. one. They were. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's got a score of forty five percent on Metacritic, which completely baffles me. Yeah, that's. Uh... <laughs> I, I just think it's one of these films that the critics they didn't get at the time. I mean, I, yeah, but I think again, you you saw was that sort of uh, dogma of you know it was an Arnie action film, and at the time it was quite popular to have a pop at that sort of generic yeah. sort of action film on there. So I don't think people realised that perhaps he would be presented with something yeah. different. You know, they're probably going into the film instantly going yeah. just another action here. Oh wow! This time we got an alien instead of a drug lord or whatever, you know. Yeah, I'm sure they were ready to dismiss it outright. I mean, so many of the, so often critics are completely wrong, and usually time sorts it all out. The films that are unforgettable still get talked about, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years later, 60 years later, you know, and you know, it doesn't matter how much critics praise some films if you know there's nothing really memorable about them they they sort of get lost to time they get forgotten and once in a while you run into the undiscovered gem but really that's that's pretty rare you know like most i think most films i i would say are mediocre like (laughs) in in general but you know sometimes you do see these um spectacular films and the critics just like were really hard on them mean to them and i i don't always know why but uh you know, or the other way around, you see critics sort of championing certain films, and I, I think like, like, why are you so invested in this film that's sort of transparently bad? But uh, we'll, we'll get to that, I think, also a little bit later. And you know, back then, to you know, to to, to be a hand up and be the you know the voice saying, yeah, this new Arnold Schwarzenegger film is fantastic. I love it. Go see it. You know, the film critic circles are you can be quite highbrow and quite snobby and you know that there can be a lot of judgment within those circles and I you know I can understand but you know ultimately I think you've got to be honest with a film and you know from the get-go certainly for people of our generation Predator just it, it does it all it ticks all the boxes and it's a film that at no point have I ever watched it and thought yeah you know it's Showing its age. Yeah, it's showing its age. It isn't as good as I thought. It's just always been there for me as one of those films that I can just go back to time and time again. So, guys, anything else you want to say about the first film? I I think we did a pretty good job of covering it. We might sort of refer back to it along the way because there's a few things I might bring up in relation to some of the later films, but I I feel good about that, yeah. Yeah. So, Martin, I think um, we'll hand things over to you. Predator 2, 1990. uh, Stephen Hopkins? Yeah, Stephen Hopkins, uh, 
Jamaican-born British director, had a background in production design, but um, I, I think this is my favorite thing that he's done. He's, he's had a couple of, I'm trying to think, like he directed one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. I think he did, oh my God, I, I'm blanking on the name, The, the Ghost in the Darkness. Yeah, yeah, it was it was the Ghost in the Darkness. Uh, the only reason I know that is because I've, I've recently reread your article, and it was um, <laughs> it was Nightmare on Elm Street Five: The Dream Child. Right, right, uh, Dream Child. Yeah, uh, blown away. A couple films like that, but he's good at sort of dynamic filmmaking, uh, interesting production design, set design. Like I think those are his strengths, and. Um, I mean, really, what what's true about the first two Predator films, I think, is just how strong the visual storytelling is. You talk about, you know, getting these impressions of the Predator or of the, you know, group of commandos without really any exposition. You know, you just sort of understand the relationships through the visual storytelling. And uh, Predator 2 is much the same way. And I, I, like I can say <laughs> from personal experience, uh, you, you can watch both films without really speaking English. And not that the dialogue isn't great, but like you can follow the stories no problem you know they just unfold visually you understand the dynamics you know through the way that the story is told visually and you know coming into predator 2 you can feel a little bit like the predator itself you know kind of looking from above trying to suss out okay like there's these different gangs there's uh police there's um, J- jamaican gang there's a colombian gang and kind of working out the dynamics just through observing them like who's pushing around who who, how everyone's acting you know i feel like being able to express a story visually it's sort of like a dying art form in some ways in film or hollywood film maybe uh you know like lately there's so many times where i I watch a film and they have to come out and tell you like oh this character is such a badass they did this and keep reminding you and like don't don't tell me show me and uh predator 2 it's probably you know the way the predator was kind of playing on uh films like commando i feel like predator 2 is playing more on Lethal Weapon or Robocop, like it's a little bit closer to those films. It's set yeah. in a There's slightly a Robocop version vibe. Yeah. LA. Yeah, it's like, like compared to the first film, I, I think like it's a little bit heightened. The performances are a little bit heightened. You know, there's something more intense and. Uh, you know, it, it sounds like a criticism to say, oh, it, it's less realistic, but I kind of like that, you know, there's this sort of hazy, dreamy quality to the film, and it, it's very intense. It's not slow at all, but there's kind of this, you know, sweaty haze that I get well, drawn into. I, every time Martin, I, I think you, you summed it up perfectly in your article <laughs> when you said it's it's like the first one, but it's like a sort of cocaine-fueled sort of heightened version of it. Right. I, I should reread my own stuff, but like the way that the first <laughs> film's like fueled on testosterone, this film's fueled on cocaine, you yeah. know, like these, these guys are not like muscly, you know, giant men, but they're all very like intense, like scary intense, the way they stare or yell or, you know, even Gary Busey, you know, that's a great supporting part where he's uh, he's so like tightly wound you're just waiting for him to snap and then he does and it's great but I, I really like Danny Glover as the lead I, I think he doesn't get enough credit for this because like it, it's an interesting action hero he's a little bit different from Schwarzenegger in the first film where he's not exactly like the um, you know more paternal commando leader you know he's you know he cares about his crew who gets killed off you know his partner who gets killed but like he's defined more by his individuality his tenacity like they, they set up very early on in the film that he's um he's very tenacious he doesn't let things go he's very stubborn and i feel that's like his approach to chasing this uh, creature you know he just doesn't let up even when he's completely in over his head I, I think that makes him a very exciting 
action hero, how it, it walks this uh, fine line between him constantly feeling like he's out of his depth and also never quite getting the, you know, defeated. Like he, he always, you know, finds some way to, t- to flip it around, turn it around. It's not like towards the end of Predator where the creature has Schwarzenegger up against the log and it says, you know what, I'm going to give you a fair shot. I'm going to take off my mask and go mono e mono. Like he actually, Danny Glover keeps after the Predator and just uh, <laughs> it doesn't give it actually a chance to show um, sympathy or show show anything resembling that. He's constantly after it and constantly sort of overcoming these odds that are against him, which I, I like, you know, he's afraid of heights, which is, again, like a little bit different from Schwarzenegger's character, who seems very fearless at the beginning. It actually sets it up that, okay, he's afraid of things like heights, but he's still going to go after this creature high up because he's not going to let it go. I, I like that about his character. You know, he's afraid, but he keeps going and he just doesn't stop. So, you know, he's um, <laughs> he's a great stubborn action hero to the point where, you know, he ends up chasing it all the way into the spaceship and killing it with its own weapon. You know, it, it's a really exciting I, like it's not a character arc but a, a character journey you know I, I feel like it's a it's a fun ride every time i watch it especially towards the second half i think from the subway sequence on maybe it's not officially uh all in real time but it kind of feels like the film just doesn't have any sort of time break you're just with danny glover chasing the predator chasing it to the meat factory and then there's the ambush which goes wrong and then he you know charges in and chases it up to the roof and then they're on the roof and the predator thinks it's cornered so it tries to blow itself up yeah it's it's, it's something that again that you know having reread your article last night something you you, you mentioned there that you know that, that last act of the film it sort of flips things on his head the predator gets wounded you know we we see see him repairing himself after he's had his arm you know chopped yes. off he's been shot a few times and and after that it's like as if danny glover says well no you know fuck this creature i'm not going to run away from it i'm going to go after it and and it's sort of like it's flipped around and i've never been like consciously aware of this but yeah danny glover is actually the one that is stalking the predator yeah he's more yes. like he's like like matt was saying earlier with the diad references he's 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 very much for the sort of john mcclain sort of just average every man street right. cop you know type uh mold isn't he but like you say he's almost got that sort of tenacity about him I think at one point when you have this like lovely sort of like late 80s sort of computer print dubbed about him and it says like obsessive compulsive yes. or <laughs> like yeah. he, you know um, you know flagrant disregard for authority and stuff like that you know it's sort of it's a little bit too hard on the nose but yeah he has got that sort of um, almost like you say like almost like a John McClane quality like you said with the, the scared of heights when he's scaling down the building you can tell he's, he's generally sort yeah. of He's not just sliding down drain pipe, he's very sort of gingerly going down, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Like, Danny Glover's probably in the best shape of his life in that film, and, like, he's in good shape, but he's not in great shape, you know? Like, not like most action heroes, especially, like, late 80s, early 90s action heroes. Like, Like, he's kind of huffing and puffing, and everyone in the film's sweating, and that's one thing I really like. It just looks, like, hot and miserable, and I don't, like, um, I, I think I've also mentioned in the article that there's, like, sort of a, like, a mythic quality to the film, which I like. It's it's almost like a modern update of uh, Theseus and the Minotaur. The city's, like, this giant labyrinth, and they get closer and holding closer until they're finally, like, at the beating heart of the spaceship at the like under the city and that's where there's nowhere left for the predator to run all the other predators are presumably watching it it just has to turn and fight there's nowhere left to run it, it's just like it, it's got to be one or the other they have to kill each other <laughs> so and it, like you see they sort of set slightly in the future but not too far in the future so they can sort of get away with 
you know, it's it's not you know that sort of far ahead that you can find it unbelievable. But the yeah. city seems to have been sort of taken over. It's like almost like this urban blight, like twenty years of urban blight have happened in like sort of five minutes. Like, yeah. You know. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't push things too far. It's only seven years into the future. You know, obviously, it was made in or released in 1990. Martin, what do you think about the change in setting between the first and the second films? Because obviously, you go from the you know the the, the actual physical jungle of, of South America to, to the to the sort of urban jungle of Los Angeles. I, I love it. I, I think it's the perfect sort of change up to keep things feeling fresh. You know, it, it's uh, you know the, this idea that oh, it's the urban jungle and there's lots of places. For... I know initially they wanted it to be New York, and I think it was just cost prohibitive, which is why there's certain things like the uh, the subway. I think LA didn't have a subway at the time when they were filming. You know, it was obviously referring to the New York subway, but they you know in making it futuristic, they added the you know they could say a futuristic LA would have a subway, which of course it does now, but and I, I think there's sort of implicit allusions to maybe global warming, that things are going to be hotter, more violent, that it's this sort of heat wave almost driving the violence. And of course, the predator like this is drawn to heat and conflict. So it, it, it just sort of makes a certain sense that that's one place it would be drawn to where you have these gangs like the gang violence again it, it's like the tribal sort of scenarios how they have their you know rituals and dress and one of my favorite characters in the film is the king willie character <laughs> which like he almost has um like not quite the same role that that billy does in the first one but he sort of brings in that almost spiritual mystical kind of dimension to the this creature that you know, of course, it, it's a rational creature. If it bleeds, it can kill it. But I kind of like that there's this extra... Sort of connection that we're not aware of. Sort of, of. connection, yeah. yeah that, that somebody can sense that, you know, there's this thing maybe from a spirit world that it's not quite human. There's something that, you know, by putting it in those terms, it's, you know, the, the campfire monster that uh, cavemen might have talked about. You know, like it, it doesn't... It, it feels like it connects it back to something within our past rather than necessarily something in our future which is something I, I like quite about these films you know i think i mean with this one especially there's a direct allusion to these creatures having hunted humans for uh centuries you know it's not quite chariot of the gods i think alien versus predator kind of takes it into chariot of the gods territory yeah, I and mean, you sort yeah. of get this feeling that you know they they come and they hunt humans and they probably always have because uh, humans are dangerous, you know. I like that uh, skull trophy room you get a glimpse of. Everyone talks about the alien, uh, <laughs> the alien display on it, but I, oh, like, I lost I think my ship. Sort of, I lost uh, my ship when I saw that. <laughs> we all did, yeah. <laughs> but like to to me, the the big takeaway of that trophy is, you know, you have these enormous monsters, these like tyrannosaurus rex like skulls and strange Klingon skulls or you know whatever, like these horrible monsters, and you have this little uh, human skull, <laughs> which is sort of prized above many of these things because humans are intelligent you know that's kind of what makes us dangerous we're intelligent creatures you know at the end of the first one Schwarzenegger he doesn't have his guns or anything but he's still uh, like a total threat to this predator because he can use his intelligence to make himself invisible to it and create traps and sort of think around uh, his trap going wrong even you know he's a smart person and I think that's what you know, in, in the universe, explanation would be why they would be hunting humans. Humans are, uh, you know, the deadliest uh, deadliest game. <laughs> so yeah. I, I like that. Uh, you know, I think going back to that scene you've just mentioned, there, when we, you know, in the finale, when we go into the Predator ship and we see the, that trophy room, 
Now, in this day and age, we're all used to movie crossovers, to franchises crossover, and, 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 and you know, it, it's commonplace now to see other films and other characters referenced in other films. It, it's, it's, it's nothing new. We, we've, we've certainly had it now, you know, shoved down our throats you know, in the last 10 years. But you go back to 1990, and that scene where you saw that, quite clearly, it's, it's the skull of, of a xenomorph from Alien and Aliens. And you know nothing like that had been seen before in in this sort of sort of meta sort yeah, of yeah it, it was a very meta scene and you know it it didn't linger too much on it but it was quite clearly there and I always remember the first time I ever you know I ever saw the film it, you know, it did stand up I thought holy cow that you know that's quite clearly an alien skull and then obviously that put in motion then the you know the the word of mouth about the fact that we were going to one day have an alien versus predator film and sometimes it's a case of you know be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> but you know I, I think it is it's far from a perfect film um, I think there's a lot of problems earlier on with the with the dialogue which I, I find to be extremely generic and you know even God rest his soul I would never want to say anything negative about Bill Paxson because I love the guy but you know his character I think is, is a little bit too over the top some of his dialogue is cringeworthy but it's almost oh, like, I, I love the over like he's almost like the um, the Shane Black character from yeah. the first one with these jokes but like <laughs> The, the whole tone of the film, I feel like, is is erased somewhat, and I I understand how that can put people off, but it, it's just something it's a little bit more potent. Everything about it's like soupier than the first. It film. is. Yeah. It's very brash. It's like the sort of Joel Silver. Yeah. It's like the Joel Silver sort of Alumai coming in. Then you get a sort of Bill Pax. Then you get you know um, Baldwin, Adam Baldwin, is it? Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. He's one of the guys from Die Hard Two. Robert Davy turns up as a police chief. You know, yeah. it's all sort of like um, the, the sort of it's the Joel the, Silver the, multiverse. Multiverse, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think the thing the film does oh, just perfectly is is that sort of the sort of mythos building of the creature itself. Because without having an exposition rammed down your throat, you've got the scene there with Gary Boosie's character, Peter Keyes, telling you know Danny Glover about the creature. Things that we as the audience already know, but he doesn't. You know, he has to spell out for him. He says, a fucking alien, you know? Yeah. <laughs> just, just to make it clear. Up to the speed of the audience, not the other way around, which is yeah. usually what the exposition dumps are for. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, we, we learn so much more about the creature, the fact that, they, you know, this time several other creatures have come down you know maybe they've come down to pick their buddy up i don't know but you know towards the end there where you see that they've all been cloaked they've all been watching this final showdown and then you've got that bit of the end with the elder predator comes over and he, he pulls that musket pistol Little out of pistol his belt flintlock. yeah yeah and, and you know it's it, it's it's engraved with the year 1715 so clearly they've been coming here for centuries and it was just it was a lovely little visual motif it's like a sort of there you go you did well here's a little trophy I always feel like by the end where you've got and, and again something which you you picked up on the article you've got you know Danny Glover stood there covered in that sort of white ash Adam Baldwin's character comes over and he's just sort of like as much as Arnie at the end of the first film is just completely downtrodden and beaten I think it's a little bit more of an upbeat ending and I mm -hmm. think that it, it fits perfectly with the thing of for them this is all a game and you know they will be back I mean, even just visually, like it's sort of an interesting contrast. At the end, Schwarzenegger's covered in that dark mud, and here Danny Glover's covered in the white ash. Like, I, I think Predator 2, one of the best things about it is that it takes steps to assure its own identity as a film while expanding on the first one and actually adding to it. You know, like after watching the second one, it's fun to go back and rewatch the first one and have it in mind that 
okay, yeah, it's not eating people. It's it's obviously hunting for sport, and maybe there are other ones with it, or maybe it's all alone. Like just sort of speculating on the creature with uh, the second one in mind. I, I think that's exciting. You know, it, it's what a good sequel should do. It instead of because there's not a reoccurring character it's not like the alien films where the sort of arc of this one character ripley throughout several films it's saying okay we're not going to push the story forward we're going to push it outwards we're going to expand the scope the universe I, i think that was sort of what i like about it as a sequel just on those terms and i kind of wish that other sequels had maybe uh taken a similar approach but um looking at predator 2 uh just in terms of it being a science fiction sequel it, it mm-hmm. does what films like Aliens and Terminator 2 did so well. It gives you more information about the creatures and about, you know, like T2 does about Skynet. But all of the extra additional stuff it gives you doesn't contradict the stuff that's been set up before. And, you know, as I've said in my pieces about Terminator and Terminator 2, the two films complement each other perfectly. Yes. And, and as much as Predator 2 for me just isn't ever going to be as good as the first film, it does nothing to diminish the impact and and the sort of you know the mythology the setup in the first film it only enhances it and i think from that point of view it's an you know it's an effective sequel and it's a sequel that and again i don't want to give too much away about what i'm going to say about the later films right but if they'd just been the first two films for me i would have been more than satisfied yeah i probably would have wanted to see more but i think those you know the first two films they exist in a nice little bubble and you know the one complements the other there was talk mm-hmm. what a years ago i don't know much of it was rumored that it was going to be a third film with both glover and schwarzenegger yeah. in it i mean that it's was, always been sort of rumored yeah, yeah. That is, they would that, try to get them back or yeah. get them to cameo it does it's, like, it sounds um, like a bit too I mean, much like the, a, f- a fan theory a bit yeah yeah you know. yeah uh, i mean the terminator comparison sort of interesting like again most sequels they sort of lighten up the tone like you know you go from the first terminator which is uh, i think quite a bit darker than the second one like predator to predator 2 it's almost that in reverse it's saying you know let's go darker and kind of weirder and not broader um you know because i mean terminator to terminator 2 there's quite a big shift in tone right it, it's not it's not bad at all I, I like it but one sort of you know the first one's almost a, a horror film almost yeah. a slasher film yeah. and the second one it, it's a spectacular action film and you know the relationship between the terminator and the kid like i i sort of like that relationship where you know a sequel doesn't have to it can be in the same universe without trying to replicate everything about the first film well, yeah, it's much like Alien and Aliens. You know, the yeah. first one is is pretty much like a, a haunted house horror movie um, mm-hmm. compared to the second one, which is, it, it's like, you know, a Vietnam allegory in space. Right. It's and a, they have it almost a, identical uh, plots, you know. I mean, it sort of pushes the basic story along, but, you know, the everything to like the false ending where, oh, you know, the ship blew up, but the alien's still alive. I have to get it out into the vacuum of space all the planets the the nuclear reactor that generates atmosphere is blown up like you know you actually go through and structurally they're almost identical and that's one thing i like about uh, really all all four of the original alien films is that they kind of follow the same formula it's always going to be ripley the alien running around but each one had sort of its own flavor to it and you know people can say well the three and maybe four aren't as good but i sort of like that each one felt distinct and you could really feel the hands of different directors on each one and uh, that that's something i I feel like has sort of disappeared from uh, franchise films in general where like you really feel that it's all been kind of watered down to a single tone like you know not not to criticize 
these films too too harshly because I like them, but the Marvel superhero films to have basically the same sort of consistent feel and tone over across many of these films. Some are a little bit more distinct. You know, you can say, oh, like, yeah, I can tell that was a James Gunn film or that one was a Shane Black film you mm. were going to be talking about, you know, but in general, a lot of those films kind of feel like they exist in the same, not, not just the same universe, but the same atmosphere and tone. They kind of make jokes the same way. They kind of, right. <laughs> no, I, I get what you're saying, but yeah, there's there's almost that sort of, not cookie cutter, because that's probably doing a disservice, but there, yeah, there's, there's usually that sort of, like you say, very familiar feel to each one of the films. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, definitely. So, anything else you want to say about Predator Two before we uh, jump ahead twenty years? <laughs> uh, I mean, I feel like I, I talked a lot, but that that was a big twenty-year gap with just the Alien versus Predator movies in between. Maybe I could just quickly say about the Alien versus Predator films. Uh, say something yeah, about them. Absolutely, fire away, Martin. Okay, I, it was sort of a long time you know reading internet message boards and kind of like waiting for it i should say i don't think it's on par with the first two films but i like alien versus predator as a comic book movie as a video game movie i think it's successful on those terms if you watch it that way as something that like really i I, it doesn't make me rethink the way i watched the first two movies the way that uh, predator 2 might make me rethink the way i watched the first film and sort of add and build on it like i kind of consider it just a sort of a one-off yeah, there's almost that sort of all bets yeah. are off sort of uh, feel with the the, sure. the the first Alien v Predator, where you, you know, sort of it's set that this yeah. could almost exist in a separate universe. Yeah, and I like I like Saint Elathan. I like the at the mountains of madness setting. Like there is something sort of you know original about it. You know, the, the, I think like it's sort of hampered by that PG thirteen rating, and there's a few things that are are kind of flawed about it. But I I like the Alien. Or the the predator, I mean, teaming up with the human, and like, there are things I actually like quite a bit about it. I think the the second one is pretty oh, it's awful. atrocious. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, Martin, let's not let, let's not yeah. pull any punches because I, yeah, it, <laughs> AVP for me is not a film that I find blasphemous to the series. I've never particularly liked the film much, but I, it, I think it, it does a lot of stuff well. It it it's, it's quite well shot. It shows some quite interesting things. Like it, it's uh, sort of, I mean. You know, I say this, I probably watched it like a dozen times just on its own. But, you know, I think if you can kind of separate it from the other films, then it's fine to just watch on its own. Yeah. I, there are, like, good little moments in it, too. Like, I remember uh, when the Predator's teaming up with St. Elathan, because it can't speak English, of course, or it doesn't really understand, it just needs to communicate. And it just does that hand gesture to show that, oh, things are going to explode, you know, like... Yeah. um the predator which we're going to be talking about in a couple minutes i feel like they couldn't figure out how to do that sort of wordless communication very well so it has like subtitles it has translation stuff like it felt really lazy in that way but we'll we'll get to that i guess i think it's because the message they were trying to put across one as deep as you know alien v predator like you say it was always a case of careful that's going to blow up wasn't it It wasn't trying to sort of drive the story along as such. Yeah, and, you know, my issues with the film, I think my biggest bugbear at the time was the fact that, like you say, Martin, it it was hampered by that PG-13 rating. It's a film based on a combination of the Alien and Predator franchises, which are adult franchises. As soon as you start to veer into PG-13 territory, you dumb things down, you can't have, you know, the the actual biology of the creature. If the aliens are going to be reproducing in the film, it's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be something that you can adequately show in a PG-13 film. So to have to replace blood with slime and ooze, it's just it's instantly going to get my back up. 
right. does it does from that point of view a bit of a disservice to the franchise because a children really crying out to see this film and if they are then give it an R rating <laughs> you know the, the children can still see the film they'll just have to take an adult with them <laughs> I, I, I'll the next film in the series of the AVP was um, 2004 2007 right. then we have I, I think it just probably came down to a matter of them looking at the numbers and saying hey how much more can we squeeze out of this uh monster mash if we but like um, does that ever I seem think, to work i don't, I don't know you no, sort of well, figures um, wise if anyone Freddy versus that... jason i i think that that did pretty well financially right yeah well okay uh, that's that, uh, that was our rated uh but this might that, surprise that was, you yeah. right avp was made for a budget of 60 million dollars which yeah it's, it's a quite a, an effects heavy film it grossed 172 million worldwide which, yeah, you know, that seems quite a bit. So it, it's almost made triple its budget. But when you factor in this sort of common um, theory that a film, a modern film, needs to make f- at least three times its budget in order to be seen by the studio as, as pulling a profit to cover marketing costs, which are not um, usually deemed part of the uh, initial production budget. You know, it hasn't really met that sort of three times I mean, the budget figure. That, that gets into wishy-washy territory because there's yeah. also, for a film like that, there's a lot of merchandising. There's also, yeah. like, that was still the heyday of DVD that hadn't quite dropped down to where it is now. So, like, I, I'm sure, obviously, it made enough money for them to say, let's greenlight a crappy sequel. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think they threw a lot of money at the sequel. They, you know? No, the, the sequel looks really... I mean, I, I think the, the guys who did the sequel, they, they were special effects guys, right? Right. Yes, um, it, yes it was... Um, the, well, the, 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 the brothers Strauss, Greg and Colin Strauss. Right, right. But, like, the effects in that aren't bad, but it's... So, like, those guys never should have directed the film, and they clearly don't... I don't know whose idea it was, but, like, they say, oh, you know, if you hide your creatures in darkness maybe it, it leaves more to the imagination but the film is so visually dark it's hard to see what's going yeah. on like yeah it's shot the, the way it's shot it's just a mess it, it looks bad a lot of it gives me the feel of a sort of almost a very good sort of youtube fan-made film yes you know? yeah sure well it, i think the, their big thing those uh brother strauss did that was skyline right which was them like oh, hey look yeah. we can make yeah. a, a low-budget sci-fi film that kind of looks like a bigger budget movie than it actually is so i don't know if they just found these two guys who were like yeah we can make that for this much money <laughs> and they were like okay it'll it'll make a certain amount but it's it's kind of like yeah. a, it's kind of like a quote off contract is to build an extension on your house isn't it you know if someone comes in at yeah. a third of the yeah. price you don't expect not to have a few leaks in there you know yeah. <laughs> I mean, Neil, it was Neil. the point where i thought like well the nails in the coffin probably never going to see a predator in a film again <laughs> yeah. you know I, I was surprised even that we got the I figured Alien would show up again because it was sort of, you know, there was enough prestige behind it and, you know, I think enough money behind that series on its own. But I think Predator's always been a little bit uh, smaller and less artistically prestigious. You know, it's never had yeah, a definitely. David Fincher or Lee Scott or, you know, somebody like that behind it. Not not to diminish people like uh, John McTiernan or Stephen Hopkins, but they're... Like they're, uh, they're you know, maybe not necessarily journeymen, but they're they're working in sort of entertaining, non-prestigious films. You That's know. right, yeah. Uh, and let's yeah. not forget, right? Alien vs. Brad the Requiem is also a Christmas film. It was released on Christmas Day 2007. Oh, God. And the tagline is, this Christmas there will be no peace on Earth. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, so that's one thing we did mention about Predator 2, because that's probably got the best tagline. The best, yes. He'll be in town soon with a few days to kill. <laughs> wow. What a, what a tagline. 
I, I'm great. sold. I'm there. Um, <laughs> Neil, tell us your little confession about AVP2. I'm going to be completely honest with AVP2. I've tried AVP2, oh, I'd say three times now. And I think the longest I've ever got is 45 minutes in before I yeah. turn off. <laughs> it's completely almost, understandable. It's, yeah. it's almost what I call a sauna movie. You go into a sauna and... <laughs> <laughs> I always go into a sauna, I think I'm going to spend a minimum of 15 minutes in this sauna and it gets to the sort of 12 minute mark and I have to leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how much of this can I tolerate? So, um, Martin, anything else you'd like to say about the Alien versus Predator films? Uh, that's about it. I mean, like, I'm... Uh, people might not know, but I'm a big Paul W.S. Anderson fan, and I'd probably put Alien vs. Predator on the low end of films that he's done. It's wow. it's not one of my favorites, so like yeah, that'll yeah. maybe tell you how I feel about <laughs> it. Gives everything I, you need I, to know. I feel like uh, that for one brief moment, Hollywood would put out like a summer blockbuster starring Santa Lathan. That was cool, yeah. uh, and I I don't know when you'll see something like that again. But <laughs> yeah, it it's sort of. I, I think you kind of have to say, well, like, I, I like it for what it is. I can't, you know, I'm just in the mood for seeing a predator swing an alien by the tail into a, a brick wall. Like, that's really all I I want right now. And <laughs> Quite frequently. Quite frequently, and, I find myself. You know, sometimes I'm in that mood. Sometimes I, you know, read the Alien vs. Predator comic books. There, there's a lot of comics. I mean, some of the comics, I think, are better than most of the films. Uh, you know, not just Alien vs. Predator, but like there were a lot of Predator uh, Dark Horse comics I used to read all the time. I really, really loved, um, you know, something like Predator World, I think, would make a better film than, you know, what, what we've gotten. <laughs> so. Absolutely. You know, when, when AVP was announced, I was expecting to follow the, you know, the, the, the plot of the original Dark Horse series where... Um, I mean, that would like a two hundred million dollar. Yeah, film. and it was. I yeah. think is it right, Martin, that the predators were seeding planets with the aliens in order to hunt them. Yes. Yeah. yeah that was. Yeah. I, but and then I think uh, the the humans were in it by say, way of the fact that they were colonial marines. I think um, yeah, there were colonial marines. They have to bring in, and they were sort of like ranchers. I remember there there was this great kind of scene early on where I think the kid jumps through like a glass window and gets all cut up, and it was sort of. I mean, now comic books, you know, you can find violent stuff everywhere, but just as a kid to kind of turn the page and open that and see something that violent and shocking in a comic book felt pretty novel at the time. Mm. Can I say, I think Prometheus is a secret remake of Alien vs. Predator. <laughs> 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 you, have, uh, you know, you have this uh, yeah. guy named Wayland who's taking his crew yeah. off to an isolated place where you have this ancient civilization structure, like a pyramid or... Uh, temple people get infected with the either the alien or the the goop and then you have the uh, instead of the engineers the predator running around uh if you go through there's a lot of like weirdly specific similarities that make me think like did, did somebody just recycle like a bunch of alien versus predator stuff to be it's like a, a lot of ambition behind a pretty bad script but... do you think it was one of those things where perhaps like you the, the person who was writing it didn't even know where they were getting those ideas from and then afterwards someone pointed it out to him and he went oh shit <laughs> yeah I knew I'd seen that somewhere before so, that was a great idea oh no <laughs> so depending on if you're going to include the AVP films as part of the Predator canon you're either going to move on three years from 2007 or if we just stick into the straight Predator films from 1990 we're going to jump 20 years forward to 2010 Predators Directed by Nimrod and Tal. Can anyone uh, tell me any other films he's directed? Dead no. Control, which isn't bad, actually. 
And Which one was that, sorry? Uh, Control. It's, uh, isn't that one of his Turkish films? Is he Latvian, Slovenian? Oh, he uh, I should, I should oh, have sorry, this in he's, front he's, of me. Um, but... I think he's Hungarian, isn't he? Yeah, he was born in Los Angeles of Hungarian ancestry. Can I just say, like, in contrast to The Predator, which I've, I've seen recently, so, like, it's it's still sort of fresh in my mind. Um, they're sort of, like, flawed in opposite directions to the mm-hmm. point where one kind of feels like a almost like a like an over response to the other like you know not, not to give too much away about the predator as uh, snobby as this is going to sound is the predator looked expensive and predators look so cheap at times like it, it looks direct to video right for a lot of it like it, it's just that feel I, I still think redeeming qualities to it there's a few things i like about predators uh but like it, it feels so shoddy in certain regards that it's hard to you know, take it as seriously as the first two films <laughs> I wasn't going to rewatch um, Predators in, in prep for this episode, but last night um, I had an hour or two free, so I rewatched it. And I don't think my stance on the film has changed particularly, apart from the fact that, and again, I don't want to skip too far ahead to uh, obviously the next film we're going to be talking about. I, I, I don't find Predators to be one of those films that is outright damaging to the franchise. And at a push, I could probably accept the right. fact that it does fit somewhere within the actual official Predator canon. I think it's trying too much to be the first film. You've got yep. obviously the jungle setting. It's, it's different because instead of having a close-knit um, team of killers, you've got like a disparate bunch of, of killers and psychopaths that have been thrown in together. You know, from that point of view, that's quite a, you know, it's quite an inventive angle premise. to come from. Yeah, I was just taking we... these people from all over. They yeah. can't trust each other, and I, I think like the premise is good, and the cast is actually quite strong. Um, you know, it's a good kind of collection of actors. Uh, Danny Trejo already mentioned, but Walton Goggins, yeah. uh, Adrian Brody, and I, I think especially Lawrence Fishburne kind of steals the show for me, and it, it, like it, it kind of perks up when he comes on screen and never quite recovers after he leaves. Yeah, look, you see with the premise, on paper, if you told me the sort of idea behind Predators, I'd think it sounded bloody amazing, but yeah. Yeah. It, just, yeah. it just kind of misses the mark somewhere. Like you see with Lawrence Fishburne's character turns up. I go the other way, he does tend to sort of chew the scenery a little bit with a, you know, the sort of oh. speaking to his imaginary friend and that, but... Yeah. Well, he's doing he's like a Colonel Kurtz kind of a thing. Yeah. Like, of course, oh, he's in there's, a, there's, Apocalypse there's, Now. Yeah, yeah there's, there's yeah. massive uh, callbacks to Apocalypse Now. Obviously, a film yeah. that Lawrence Fishburne was in himself. But he sort of comes in, and then you think it's building the one thing, and then he just gets taken out of it yeah. so quickly. It's yeah. like as if they only had enough money for two days filming with him. It does, and he, he, he does. <laughs> yeah, he just does get sort of taken out quite unceremoniously. Yeah. He just gets obliterated by the Predator shoulder cannon. I, I don't think I'll be. You know, I've watched Predators again. I think now for the third time, probably out of necessity, just in prep for this episode i don't think i'll be going back to it um you know they, I, you know i've forgotten that mahershala ali is in the film you know this it's got a it's got a very good cast but yeah i think it's a little sloppy in the execution like you say watching it now i'm actually reminded of annihilation obviously a film which was made you know just just this year yeah, but it, there's there's definite um you know I, i'm not saying for a second that annihilation was in any way influenced by predators far from it and you know annihilation is a better film without doubt but you know, it, it looking back last night, I was thinking, yeah, this this is, and you know, I'm getting callbacks now to Annihilation. You know, that sort of almost world, almost Earth type. Yes, setting, almost yeah. Earth. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. But you know, like I say, it's it, 
I, I don't find it like sort of franchise destroying damaging in that sense and no no it's... and it kind of lives on its own as well doesn't it I found we're going to jump forward again to the Predator but I found they were sort of referencing the first two films rather than the third film which obviously they wouldn't know about anyway yeah. Predators almost sort of lives in its own little sort of pocket doesn't it whereas this is this one sort of element of the story that doesn't yeah. need to relate to anything else you know now like I said you said the fact that um, AVP Requiem if it was a fan film you'd be a little bit more forgiven of it I think Predators <laughs> again you know it if this was a fan-made film, this would be the greatest fan-made film ever. Oh made. yeah, that's be, be up there with Batman Did End. But <laughs> yeah, it really feels like like I just wish somebody had taken a little bit more thought and care in making like Robert Rodriguez. Like, lately, it seems as if his thing has become I'm going to shoot it as inexpensively and sort of I don't know shoddily as as I can get away with, and that's sort of like he made like I I don't think that's what he always used to be. Like when you watch El Mariachi, it's like oh like I can't believe you made it for that little money but it's a, still a good movie or Desperado and I, I feel like as he's gone on it, like I, I feel like he's sort of used the low budget quick fast ethos as an excuse to get away with a lot of like sort of subpar films or definitely you know like I, I think maybe if they had taken this script and this cast and said okay we're gonna triple the budget and uh, you know hand it over to maybe a director with a you know, who's going to take a longer shooting schedule. I, I think they could have really made something, you know, on par with the first two films, but it feels too rushed. Like, a lot of the action isn't good. You know, the way it's shot, sort of shaky and sort of... You can tell that they were kind of cheating their way through a lot of it. There's only really one, I think, good action sequence in the whole film, and that's the, um, the Yakuza with the samurai sword facing off the predator in the field it, it's like a reference to uh harry Geary, you know and yeah. th that's actually shot well and some beautifully shot scene that is yeah you know I mean, partly because it's it's ripping off kobayashi it's like oh we'll yeah. just we'll redo that <laughs> but but that's, like, that, that, that's, that's what the whole film is about really isn't it yeah yeah the whole film you is know, almost like, like callbacks just redoing the first yes. film yeah it's a film um, for, it's, it's full of callbacks and yeah. you know it, if you look at it, Adrian Brody at the time, he was, you know, well, he still is obviously an Oscar-winning actor. He, he was hot for, shit back then. Yeah, he was yeah. hot shit for, you know, for <laughs> The Pianist. You had Lawrence Fishburne, um, you know, Topher Grace at the time. You know, Danny Trejo was like a go-to man if you're going to, you know, yep. make an action film. And it just, like I say, I don't find it particularly offensive. I haven't got much more to say about it, to be honest with you guys. Uh, <laughs> Is there the, anything the, the else that we quote on the DVD cover yeah. is not particularly offensive? No. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's one of those films, like I say, it's 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 almost the sort of biggest wasted opportunity because I say the actual premise yeah. to it is really you know yeah. really intriguing. You say you've got a, a stellar cast there, really a really good sort of cast of not like massive actors, but you know guys who've got real sort of acting chops there, you know. And they kind of just missed the point yeah. all the time throughout yeah. that film, don't they? And one thing I will say, you obviously, want to see it fleshed out and yeah. Looking at the the mythology which is set up in these films now chronologically, looking at just the four Predator films, you've got the first one, the second one which does it you know to an even greater degree, and there's nothing that the third film does that I think is damaging because you've got the fact that it does set up the fact that you've got warring factions within the Predator race. And, you know, I like that. That makes perfect sense. It makes sense, but it's almost like very much like we were uh, like Martin was saying about the sort of diehard uh, sort of evolution. This is almost the, the first first sort of damage. The predator should be one predator on its own. It's a, it's an elite yes. sort of fighting killing machine. When you introduce several different predators and then it, and it's like we get a bigger predator, we get a more fierce predator. Yeah, the, the, the bigger predator is not 
I, I don't like it at all. The one with the jaw bone, like the, the design of it and the way it sort of acts. Like, again, you know, sort of thinking back to the, the lack of uh, Kevin Peter Hall in these films, like something about it feels really clumsy in the way it's done. And I mean, there are... It's, it's the first film with a guy, he looks like a guy in a suit. Yeah, he yeah, does, it looks yeah. like a guy in a suit and like that the CGI face is just kind of off-putting. And and then like the, the whole... Um, you know, very fan servicey. Oh, it's going to fight the original Predator or something that looks just like it, and show one up it just to show how big and tough it. Like, I don't know. It feels sort of ridiculous. <laughs> like, it, it's hard to take seriously. It's just, uh, you know, there's a kind of cartoon logic to a lot of it, and there are a couple things. Like, I like some of the uh, added Predator technology. I think is kind of neat. There's that one using a little drone that's like a Falcon almost. I thought, oh, yeah. like that seems like something a Predator would actually but, use. Do you know what uh, I found, Martin, with that? Um, <laughs> watching it last night, I felt that that was, you know, like I say about you set parameters for the creature, yes. and you set up its its threat, its strength, and its vulnerabilities. I think when you give it a drone. So it's able to survey its territory and know more than its prey. You're giving it an unfair advantage. And I think they went too far with doing things like that. Sure. But again, let's put a pin in that because I think that's something that's going to crop <laughs> well, up again. Like it's, uh, It feels like with the Predator, especially in the first two films, they never say it outright. But, you know, for them, it could be like a rite passage. It could be, you know, something ritualistic here. It just feels so like... Uh, I don't know, slap happy with the way it's hunting people. And like there's no... There's no ceremony in it. There's no. It's just considering how we can make them a bigger threat to these uh, group of humans. You know, like it's not that. You know, it's careless. I feel I, like that's yeah. the thing with predators overall. It's just sort of an interesting premise and interesting talent. Like there's some raw positive traits there, but it's handled with a lack of care that I think makes it not a memorable film. Like I was just talking to uh, Marcus of uh, Pinland Empire and uh, John Cribbs from The Pink Smoke, um, you know, and it was like they had seen the film and I was referencing the the Predator dogs in this in relation to the uh, the Predator. And they had seen the film. They didn't remember that the, the, the Predators has Predator dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I had to keep insisting and eventually send them a clip of it. But like, I, I feel like that's the kind of film it is. You know, there's like, oh, like there was an idea there, but it just didn't stick with anyone who watched it. It's not memorable. It's not. I think so. And I think it's like you say, it's the first it's film. film. Yeah. It's the first film that treats it like a monster movie rather than, sort yeah. of, you know, a sort of individual character and that, that almost gives it that sort of it becomes instantly forgettable because of that doesn't it yeah yeah so predators 2010 not a massive hit um certainly not uh critically um a hit by any by any stretch right so uh without further ado it's the reason you've all tuned into this episode it's our it's our it's our main review this week is shane black's fourth film in the uh predator franchise not kind of an avp the Predator. So, guys, um, when this film was first announced, what were your initial uh, thoughts? I'd sort of known it was in the works, and I I think maybe I talked about this on one of my first Wrong Reel appearances. It was also on The Predator, and that was maybe 2016. So I, I'd known about it for quite a bit of time, and I wasn't even sure if it would 
be made. Like when I first heard about it, it was like, oh, Shane Black doing a Predator film that might be too good to be true. It might just like not happen the way a lot of these films just don't happen. And it sounded like it had a good pedigree. Like I like I'm a Shane Black fan. I, I really am. I like Iron Man through quite a bit. That's one of my favorite Marvel movies. I like the nice guys. I really love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. A lot of the scripts he's written, I think, are uh, pretty good to excellent. And uh, Fred Decker, who co-wrote the script for The Predator, like, you know, Monster Squad was one of my <laughs> childhood uh, stalwart films, you yeah. know. No so, <laughs> and let's, you know, let's, let's like not forget, good. Martin, that Fred Decker also directed Robocop 3. <laughs> oh, I, I'm not sure if I realized that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we won't go there. He, he did do Night of the Creeps, so I'll yeah. maybe I'll let him off the hook. But... Uh, like, you know, it felt like a good kind of team maybe behind the camera. So I'm like, okay, I'll be optimistic. But the more I heard about the story, you know, as little bits would leak here and there, things about the narrative, I think it kind of made me feel like this might not turn out well. I just had kind of a bad feeling that sort of lingered. And I, I tried to go in with an open mind and optimism and I, I tried to get into it. There was a moment when I was even almost on board with the film, but I think as a Predator fan, as a Shane Black fan, uh, I, I found it monumentally awful. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Martin, can I just stop you there? Sorry, we, we persistently do this. I do have to say for our listeners, we're going to be spoiling the, the, right, the, the yeah. Predator. We're, we're not going to be leaving any stone unturned with regards to the plot, if there is any to... If you've got any intention of seeing the Predator and you don't want the film spoiled for you, now turn us off, go away, watch the film, come back, and we'll be um, we'll be uh, dissecting it in all this gory glory for you. For those who don't intend to watch the film and are just listening to us because you like the sound of our uh, dulcet voices, then I'll just give you... I'll give you the briefest of the three 20th century fox synopsises i found of the film when a young boy accidentally triggers the universe's most lethal hunters return to earth only a ragtag crew of ex-soldiers and a disgruntled science teacher can prevent the end of the human race that, that synopsis is only like 80 percent true yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Obviously, Martin, you've given away, I think, where your opinion of this film is going to go. Right. Uh, Neil, what, what, what were your feelings going into The Predator? Much the same as Martin. When I first sort of started like, you know, picking up the rumours this was going to happen and then it was going to happen and so on, I actually had really high hopes for it. And literally, to quote both Martin and Han Solo, as the time went on, I just had a bad feeling about this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and like you say, the first sort of shots that were sort of coming off the, off the sets, and like you say, little bits that were being leaked, there were stories of reshoots, which is not a bad thing nowadays, because, you know, a lot of big budget sort of franchise movies now do go down this line years ago. It sounds like a lot was reshot on this yes. one, and then but reshot again uh, fairly recently before it was released. Yeah, get, and I've got to be honest as well, Literally, even the sort of the teaser trailers, the the trailers that were coming through, instantly I was thinking it reminded me of the forty five minutes I'd endured of Alien v Predator two straight away. You know, it looked very similar. <laughs> mm. So I had a really sort of you know really low bar expectation for this film. Anyway, I think I got to see it about two days after it came out. So although it's avoiding reviews, you can sort of miss the headlines sometimes. And it seemed that a lot of people were sort of almost ready to jump on this film straight away. Yeah, I I think. The first moment I had an inkling that things weren't going to be well with this film was the very first image I saw of it when they released the. It was oh, one the, of the cast photo. The cast photo, and yeah. you had um, is it Jacob Tremblay, the the, the yes. young lad from from, little, from Room. From Room, yeah, yeah, not that, the Room, no, not, like not the, the Room, predator, no. not the Predator, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, J Jacob Tremblay was he was fantastic in Room, uh, great film. Just seeing 
a, a kid in a Predator film, I automatically had reservations thinking of where they were going with it. What is it with Shane Black and kids? As much as he put a kid front and centre in Iron Man 3 for a little portion of that middle section of the film, it worked. Yeah, it worked. I, yeah. I'm not like opposed to the idea in and of itself. Like, um... I, I think the difference being, Martin, yeah. is that you put a kid in an Iron Man film, it, it fits perfectly. Sure. Because if, if superheroes are real in you know this this you know imaginary universe, then kids are going to be in awe of them. If I was a kid, I wouldn't be anywhere near a, a creature that's probably going to you know rip my spine out, skin me, and you know make trophies out of me. I I I wouldn't want anything to do with that. And yeah, again, when you, I saw... if you're going for the hard R rated as well, it's yeah. quite strange to bring the child in, doesn't it? It did. Yeah. Although I got to say, I, I always say that the Predator franchise I think had room for exactly one kid in it, and that's the kid in Predator Two who wants some candy. Wants some yeah. candy. <laughs> this, this like little little annoying kid running around the cemetery with a toy gun <laughs> and you know the predator doesn't kill him of course because hey as a kid you know that sort of establishes like you said uh you know rules ground rules for how this creature hunts and operates it, yeah it was sort of strange that a kid would be so prominent in the film and like i i was willing to give it a shot you know of course like i mentioned monster squad i, I noticed there were a couple uh, little allusions or references to monster squad like the frankenstein mask and yeah just, just the suburb setting i thought like okay like maybe you know predator and a kid running around the suburbs like okay like maybe i can uh, buy that you know so I, I tried to give it a shot but i I don't think I'd really heard before I'd seen the film that uh, the, the character he was going to be playing was uh, autistic. Like the, the way it's used is very strange. Like mm. it, it's that kind of idiot savant cliche that I feel like that was played out such a long time ago. Like, the, you know, Mercury Rising and there, like there's a bunch of books and films and television where you have these kinds of uh, autistic children with... Um, you know, some incredible ability for uh, technology or some, something like that, you know, so it felt like, you know, right away, you know, you're kind of getting into cliche territory and kind of not just cliche, but uncomfortable kind of use of mental illness, which the film kind of doubles down on later. Right. Speaking of which, Martin, they, I think there's all sorts of issues where they handle um, the autism thing with... Uh, not... I mean, it becomes a major plot point to yeah. the point where, like, it's the MacGuffin of the film is that the Predator's trying to acquire autism. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's strange you mentioned the Mercury Rising because that was, that was exactly the same thing I thought when I was watching it. <laughs> right. It was like, so have we done this like 20 years ago? <laughs> yeah, it feels like if it's like a self-conscious, like, oh, you know, we're going to kind of throw back to 90s, 80s kind of stories. I didn't like it the way it was done or the way it was used, you know. I kind of got the impression that Black was trying to sort of do something good with this, you know, sort yeah. of like that, you know, just because you're autistic is not a bad thing. And I think it was the same oh, no. the same sort of thing with the, the Tourette's as well. Like, when I think he was trying to do something good, it was just the way it was handled was very sort of ham-fisted, wasn't it? And it came yeah. off almost being quite sort of offensive at points. Now, I, yeah, I, I will say, I, with, with regards to what you just said, you know, about you've got Jacob Tremblay's character who is autistic and he's got these sort of incredible abilities like we see in the in the classroom when he picks up all the, the, the chess pieces which are, have been thrown on the floor from chess club and puts them all back exactly as they were. But then you've got and again, this is skipping on. People who've seen the film will know exactly what we're talking about. For, but, but, but for those who don't, um, Boyd Holbrook's main character ends up in a situation where he's thrown together with a load of... Like a ragtag Yeah, band. a ragtag group yeah. of, of, of former military men uh, who have got various issues, one of which is Thomas Jane's character of Baxley, who suffers from Tourette's. Now, 
The main joke seems to be there is the fact that Thomas Jane can't obviously help what he says. He's constantly swearing and saying inappropriate things. And Shane Black does seem to go out of his way to sort of make him one of the sort of comedy elements of a film which is full of, I think, unnecessary comedy elements. Right. And I think you've got to you've got to be very careful. If you're going to make a character's um, disability, because Tourette's is a disability, and if you're going to make that the, the, the point of much of the, the jokes of a certain portion of that film, I think you've got to be careful. Because first off... Tourette's doesn't always manifest itself in an inability to control what you say. It, it could be a tick, it could be a twitch, it could be any number of things. And, you know, as much as, yes, you, you know, Shane Black is saying that this particular character has got the, the type of Tourette's that causes him to swear. Okay, that's fine. You can use it for one or two gags, I think, within reason. Pushing it like I did, or like they did with... Um, the well, it was the whole character. I mean, like, yeah. these characters, I feel like... Like it's okay to have a group of uh, you know mentally ill soldiers like that's actually kind of interesting all hunting this uh, creature, but they need to be characters and they weren't mm. really anything beyond their you know specific mental illnesses. Like it, it kind of felt like you know oh it's this one quirk that's going to be the whole character and that, that felt really sort of disrespectful. As yeah, a, it was almost defining each yeah. character, wasn't it? it? Was like you say it was this guy's got Tourette's, this guy's got anxiety, this guy's got and it was like that's yep. all, that was all they had. Yeah. You yes. Know, Whereas if like, it had gone uh, the other way and perhaps displayed yeah. different sort of um, traits from, it would have been a lot more sort of a, a much better payoff and a lot more respectful, I think. Yeah, and I, I think the one guy Tervante Rhodes gets like a little bit more because he's kind of the the leader of that group. But yeah. even he, like, I don't know when he finally like commits suicide at the end of the film to, you know, like I I don't know. It, it sort of bothered me the way mental illness was used in the film. Like I should say, like I'm not somebody who usually gets. Uh, you I know, think, I think uh, offended about things, or like, you know, I, I'm not like a, somebody who usually feels like movies should walk on eggshells, but just there was like sort of a lack of regard here that I thought was uh, strange and off putting and not um, not the kind of thing I'd want to have on my mind while I'm trying to enjoy a film, you know, like I, I wish these characters were more fleshed out. Like, you know, the, the characters in the first film could have been such cliches, you know, and they are kind of like walking cliches, but you get to know them, you get to care about them, and I feel like just that work wasn't put into developing and fleshing out these characters that you know it's sort of like they they wrote a diagnosis and that's the yeah it was like pro- you again yeah. you again the first draft synopsis of each character really weren't you yeah there was no sort of meat on the bone with any yeah. of them so, so obviously the film opens with Boyd Holbrook's character he's some sort of um a sniper assassin he's on a mission and going back Further to that, you know, the the actual opening of the film, we see two spaceships flying through space, having a bit of a space battle. One of them opens like a sort of a rift in space and ends up just outside of Earth. Uh, going back to what I was saying about the, the opening of, you know, the nineteen eighty seven original, it's very quiet, it's atmospheric, it sort of builds up to a sort of you know thing of you know. Setting. This one comes guns blazing. Yeah, guns blazing. It's all brash. It's all loud. And I, yeah. even, I went to see with a friend of mine who was a big fan of um, of the Predator films. And I said to him, uh, pretty much as that scene was playing, wouldn't this scene have played so much better if it was played in silence? As in, like you know, spaceships going through space wouldn't make oh, that, any that noise. Much better. Yeah. Just to give it a little bit more of a yeah. sense of realism and a little bit more care that they've actually thought. Well, you know, like let, let, let's let's hark yeah. back to something like Gravity with his an incredible use of silence in all the space scenes which make up you know most of the film i thought straight away it, it set out this stall it was going to be brash loud noisy um appealing 
and no, no offence to anyone that likes it, but I get the impression that this film was made to appeal to the lowest common denominator. Sure. It, you know, when we get on Earth, uh, we've got the Predator who's been captured. Uh, we, we see him in a lab, Boyd Holbrook gets taken there. And then you've got the scene of the Predator breaking out of the lab. Now, I thought if any part of the film was in any way half decent, it was that one. But even yeah, I, even like that was so. you know that was loaded with things that didn't need to be in it. Having Jake Boosie turn up as the son of Peter Keys from the second film because he yeah, announces himself as yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was low, low that good. They did it? absolutely nothing with him, and even like ultimately, what happens to him was unclear. We saw that he'd been shot. Um, did we even see him get killed? No, I don't think so. I like it, I don't know if that's something that came from the reshoots. Like, hey, we need to connect this more to the previous films or i don't know why i like when he showed up i thought oh okay he's going to be an actual character in the film <laughs> you know not not just like a basically like a fan service cameo like it's not even a cameo because it's not gary Busey. it's just like a son of a cameo <laughs> yeah. uh, but i and it doesn't really make sense because as you find out the predators uh, basically like a defector trying to save the human race like why it goes on a killing spree immediately as soon as it crash lands and then on the second killing spree after it like maybe if it gets out and then you realize, like, oh, it's not actually trying to kill us. But it it's, immediately goes into that, uh, like, slasher, you know, Jason Voorhees mode, which goes completely against what they say its motivation is in the plot. But for yeah. a minute, like a hot minute, uh, you know, when Olivia Munn was chasing it with the tranquilizer gun, I thought, okay, like, it's, it's a little rough, but I think I'm going to be on board. The soldiers are going to be her uh, seven dwarves, and she's Snow White. Gonna, you know, they're not trying to kill the predator. They're trying to uh, capture it. Okay, that's something different. Like, happen. Movie, happen. Take me away. <laughs> and then, it, like, I, I think... That all got deflated like immediately with um, her shooting herself in the foot in that sort of clumsy bit of uh, you know slapstick falling off the truck. Like you know, it was funny. A lot of this film, I got to say, is genuinely funny. But you know, it, it, like we said about the first film, that first film knew when to put it away, get serious, and this doesn't. It feels like it keeps breaking any sort of tension that it, it could potentially have. It keeps joking almost to distract you from just how mind-bogglingly dumb this all is. <laughs> like, you know, like, like you said about the humor, uh, when you said about the humor, yeah. I, I almost got the impression it was like, you know, the sort of cliche about like some producer or some studio head coming in and saying, we need more gags. It was almost as if they were sort of ramming them in yeah. in the reshoots to yeah. try and give it like a, a comic tone. Like, like that, that could be a test screening thing. Like, oh, people liked the comedy. Put more comedy in it. That's something yeah. that's working. Like maybe like that could be, but like joking right all the way through it, like at moments that should have been kind of serious and you should have cared about. Like to me, the, the most ridiculous one was, um, I think it was uh, Thomas Jane and Keegan Key from uh, Key and Peele, of course, when they're like shooting each other while they're both dying and it's like played for comedy and i thought like how <laughs> like oh. you know and like yeah it's, it's funny like you can say it's funny but it just you know is that really what the film needs at that particular moment like yeah and you wanted that scene you wanted that scene to be perhaps quite poignant because it was yeah they were sort of like bickering back and forth it was really like sort of like 20 seconds before that scene they sort of said oh no they're best friends you know <laughs> and it was like oh right okay and I was like, oh, right, they obviously had this sort of agreement that if they ever go into this sort of scenario, they take each other out. And like you say, it was always played for just like a cheap laugh, really, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Can I, like, every time we, every time we, re we review a new film, if it's in relation to the, the other films, I've not made any notes whatsoever about Predator, Predator 2 or Predators even. 
But I have made some notes of other Predator, which I'm just going to go through in, a, in some sort of haphazard fashion just for us to address. And the first one, I think one of my biggest gripes, obviously we see the, the classic Predator is killed off very early on by what we see as this super Predator. Bigger oh, Predator. The bigger CGI Predator, super, yeah. CGI predator. Super Predator. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> like, again, I mean... You know, it's it's not necessarily Kevin Peter Hall acting, but the physical acting wasn't bad for the the first Predator. Like, you know, when it's mm -hmm. running on the rooftop, I thought like, oh, like it, it's good to see something that big just moving sort of gracefully and yeah, fast. Yeah, the Valeria like, grace to it. You know that like that was actually sort of engaging that first one, and then they immediately killed it off with this CGI monstrosity, <laughs> which like it hurts my eyes to look at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was, it was, I sent Sky a link from um, on YouTube earlier, it was uh, the old Family Guy episode where uh, Peter Griffin says, I've got an idea for a sequel to Jaws, it's called Bigger Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, oh, basically, the guys from Jaws are fighting Jaws, and then Bigger Jaws turns up, so Jaws has to join the guys on the boat, and he's like, oh no, Bigger Jaws, right, I'm going to get you. And that was the impression I got all the way yeah. through, all the way through, I was just thinking, Bigger Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> So, Star Trek films, like I was thinking how, um, like you know, Star Trek Nemesis, Star Trek Into Darkness, they have to like make the bad guy ship like super duper big to be like any kind <laughs> yeah. of a credible threat. Yeah, when, like the best Star Trek uh, villain, it, it was Khan in Wrath of Khan. He's actually got like a smaller, weaker ship, and yeah. it's just, his intelligence makes it dangerous, you know. And that like it's well written, so you don't need to like beef everything up to be a credible threat. Like if there was just that one predator. That was a guy in a suit for the whole film. I would have been more than happy. You that's know, what, the fact well, that's that what we all wanted like, to see. Yeah. One up it. Um, you know, and people are going to accuse us. I'm sure of like fanboyism that oh, like you just wanted the same old, same old again. But like, like I would have taken something different if it was good, but it wasn't. So like, we had exactly the same conversation earlier. Yeah. Like, like keep it simple. <laughs> like I feel like this movie. You know, at no point did somebody say, "Well, like keep it simple, stupid." <laughs> yeah, keep it. Yeah, exactly. Keep it I, simple, stupid. I, yeah. I go the other way. I, I almost think there was perhaps a good movie there at the beginning, and they've sort of, you know, I think just too many cooks have jumped in and said, "Well, we need to do this. We need to do that." And I think because like I, I'm like I mean, there could be a masterpiece that's like on the cutting room floor, but I I don't know. I have no, a feeling like no. just from. What, what made it to the screen like at no point was there something where it's like oh maybe if there's uh a... <laughs> yeah so like i said my, my main issue being then the fact that that this film does what the rest of the films haven't done it messes with the mythology of the of the race that they're now trying to enhance themselves and I think that that completely contradicts what is set up in in the first two films, where you've got a, an alien race that's followed the same tradition for centuries, and I think that was shown to great effect at the end of the second film. You know, you've got other little things like as much as you say about the the, the dogs in Predators, I don't actually think they're anything to do with the race. They're just another species they put on the planet to sort of mix things up. Whereas, too, yeah, but in this yeah, film, they, the super yeah. predator has got what I'll call predator dogs. And you know, at least the ones in Predators actually look. And everything. Yeah. Oh, oh my word! I'm just, I'm just reminded of that that disturbing scene at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Philip Kaufman version, where you've oh, got the, the, face the yeah the, the dog, dog yeah. the dog with a human face, which is incredibly disturbing. Whereas when you see a predator face on a dog, it just looks laughable. <laughs> you know, it's. <laughs> And again, like, I got I got massive vibes of, yeah. of AVP two with this film, with the setting, and 
it, it, you know, with the fact you've got this super CGI predator, which was much like the the pred alien from AVP two, right. which I don't, Neil, you wouldn't have seen because you only got forty five yeah, minutes no. into it. But you know, you weren't missing anything. And and again, the the, the humor in the film that you know you've got a bunch of these these good guys, well, well, just referred to as the goons, and they were just a bunch of clowns, and. It was like as if they made another hangover film where they all took acid and they were all hallucinating, imagining being chased by this big alien. At no point in the film did anyone give across the fact that they were terrified of this of this creature. But Boyd Holbrook is a wisp compared to Arnie, who is in the first film superhuman. Yet in this film, Boyd Holbrook's character showed no fear whatsoever. Where, where is the sense of impending doom and dread? There was none of that. It, it was literally just like a, a light-hearted action comedy. Yeah, the, the thing is, they sort of built him up at the beginning as being sort of like a sniper. So I thought, okay, we're going for a different angle here and he's going to be a bit more methodical and stuff like that. And he just kind of just run head-on at this giant predator, yeah. didn't he, all the way through yeah. it. It was no sort of, like you say, it was no sort of, mal- uh, no sort of like, oh my God, this thing's going to tear me apart. Well, bearing in mind, his, his child was also at <laughs> yeah. risk in the film. So that would give him even more cause to be cautious and to mm. get the hell out of there. But no, you know, he's just running headlong <laughs> to this giant 11-foot-tall creature. And again, like you say about bigger jaws, <laughs> you've, you've got you've got in predators. You've got a bigger predator. It's like as if he's um, of a different different ethnicity within the gr- within yeah. the actual predator race. This thing is eleven foot tall. <laughs> oh, you know, for, for, the, for the people who are going to say you're just like a bunch of pissy upset fanboys, <laughs> no, we're not. What we want is quality writing. We want decent acting. Right? We we want half decent effects. Not that effects are everything. But come on, look a bit a bit there towards a, the end with lot, the... There was a lot of effects on here where I was thinking it actually looks like a sort of high budget sort of sci fi channel thing. Well, I mean there were things in it that like again, comparing it to Predators, I thought like, oh, you can tell that it had a little bit more of a budget behind it. It looked a little bit more polished actually. Like I mean that uh, the, the big predator that that's a bad example yeah. like that. but like you know in general like i could tell you know there is at least some hollywood polish to it but it just the, the like disregard for the audience's intelligence like like i i'm i'm shocked that this movie already has apologists just being like oh i thought it was pretty great and clever and like like how stupid do you have to be to like a film like this but, like it, it practically insults your intelligence yeah. the, the whole way through and insults your desire to care about a film like why why would anyone like this i don't know uh, no offense to anyone who does even if i just called you stupid but like <laughs> near the end when um like oh the predator just wants mckenna and i thought like oh that's right he just wants the the kid because he's the one who solved this uh, predator technology and and then the movie's like, oh no, they want uh, Boyd Holbrook. And I thought, oh, okay. And then it says, oh no, really? He just wants Jacob Tremblay, the kid McKenna. As if like it's a plot twist, but like it was a plot twist dependent on your complete stupidity and the character's stupidity. Like, like that's not good. Like no. it, it's so dumbed down. It's so idiotic. It's, and you know, I, I've seen some people come out and say, "Well, that's you know what the Predator films were always were, where it's this just like dumb sci-fi action." But like I, I can tell you, as somebody who's seen those films many, many times over they're many not, yeah. years, they're not. This is so yeah. that's not really a, like you know a good reason. And you know, to people to actually sort of you know use uh, you know whether you consider yourself a fan or not to try to like impugn your. <laughs> motivations for disliking a film like I, I just I, I can't stand that stuff like all the 
rhetoric that comes up every time you have sort of a big franchise film that's contentious it's always like atrocious the way people sort of you know insult anyone who doesn't like it you know like it's fine if you like it it's fine if you enjoy it get something out of it like sure i you know i I came down a little bit hard because this movie pissed me off but (laughs) like really like you know, if, fine, but like, please, please don't be like, oh, you're just a, you're just a fanboy who wants nostalgia, or you, like, I'm not, I'm really not, and like, I actually wish that this franchise had pushed more to take itself into new territory, or you know, somebody had yeah. taken charge and kind of done something fresh with it, because this movie's not fresh at all. Like, it feels like some rejected '90s monstrosity, you know. It's almost a mishmash of the sort of. Yeah plot points of several of the other films isn't it yeah and like you say I think when people you know we were talking when we we got a lot of flack on Twitter didn't we for the sort of Last Jedi where we sort of tore that apart <laughs> well no, no it's, it's not, we, it's not, we didn't that's it's the not, thing it's not because we're fanboys it's because we know how good these films could be I think that's the difference like you say when you when you sort of look at films like the first two Predators you know there's potential there and when you hear that someone like Shane Black's coming on board hmm. it almost sort of heightens your sort of excitement for it because you yeah because you you know that there are stories to be told here there are better ways this film can go I I think you say that I think we're expecting to get flack and as much as there's a massive fan divide now in Star Wars with people who are pro The Last Jedi and people who are against I think because we in the first episode we ever recorded we gave both sides didn't we 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 you know as much as Steve Amos who was one of the film 19 wasn't with us for that episode you had three people two of which really didn't like the film, one of which wasn't keen on it at all, but we also have to put forward the fact that Steve loves the film. There's a lot of people who love the film, and if you do, great, more power to you. Uh, you know, mm. There's nothing worse than, than going into a franchise that you love and being disappointed by you know a film within it, You know, from a fan's point of view. And if you like this film, that's fine, but we're just putting across the reasons why we didn't like it, because as a film, as a, as a standalone film, unrelated even to the Predator franchise, I think this film would have just... Completely it's a not, bad not film worked. to begin with, and yeah. then compared yeah. to the earlier yeah. ones, it's even worse. Like yeah. I say, go, going back to that thing, one of those pins that we put in earlier, let's pull that one out, the fact that okay. you, you're setting up parameters win, within which your antagonist and protagonist operates. You know, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, and I, I think that's something that all well-written films should abide by. This film, you kill off the classic Predator so early on to replace him with a super Predator who seems to be able to create all of these weapons from nowhere. All of these blades that he's shooting out, this sort of harpoon gun, he's completely invincible. And, you know, there's at no point is there a sense that this, this character is well thought out. All they've done is, yeah, let's make, make everything bigger. Bigger is better. And I think from that point of view, it just completely smacks of, of lazy writing and a complete lack of attention to details, to where they're going, to sort of, you know, just inject a little bit of originality and ingenuity into this film. Sure. Because how many times have we seen, oh yeah, bigger is better, you know? And it's something that even films like Robocop 2 with Kane being the replacement for Robocop is almost mocking. It's, it's, I think it's knowingly mocking it, itself. It makes by, a joke out of it. Yeah. His name is Robocop 2. Yeah. But he's not a cop. He's a drug dealer and he can't even talk. So how the hell could you ever be a cop? And I think it's almost like knowingly making fun of itself. Whereas The Predator, I don't think it's, it's, it's as self-aware of it as it as it needs to be. I don't think it was any degree of satire in bigger. Not at, all, no. not at all. I mean, for all the films winking and joking and, oh yeah, that's not really what a predator is. And for all that stuff, there, there's like a lack of self-awareness. You're right. I, I think so. Like it, it's off-putting to 
see a film that doesn't take itself seriously and I, I don't know like it gives you no I mean I felt this with Predators but I feel it especially with this one that just the series has no direction like that there's no nobody has any idea where to take it and I think like there's some obvious places where you could take it that would be very interesting and uh, I, like I'm surprised to see you know something that feels so directionless and sloppy and poorly thought out coming from somebody who i think has had like a very good track record so far like shane yeah. black like i i think i've probably seen all these films i don't know if there's any anyone i would have missed but like uh nice guys iron man 3 kiss kiss bang bang like this i'm sure this is by far the worst thing he's done it, it definitely sort of lacks i find a lot of shane black a lot you get a lot of, sort of distinctive sort of punchy humor through a lot of his films they are quite sort of crisp films if you know what i mean they move along at a good pace they have a very sort of definitive beginning middle and end and this one just seems to be just all over the shop oh absolutely it keeps adding plot on yeah. to itself like it, it you know the first predator film it starts off with all these characters and you know plot stuff with the cia and the rescue mission and it actually strips that away it strips away the characters it strips away the guns it strips away the plot until you get to its most basic elements where the core of the conflict is in this it just keeps adding and adding yeah. <laughs> and, like it turns into this bloated mess by the third act like it's this unwieldy thing you know you know i i completely agree and one again one of the biggest signs i think that this film was like a mishmash of of different ideas production problems things like guys the editing mm -hmm. it, you know the, the the action's indecipherable but then you move from one set piece and location to another and it's just got this extremely sort of disjointed feeling to it i assume that's from uh, reshoots yeah probably you, had something to do with that yeah no i as much as i'm always consciously aware of bad editing when uh, there are people who can like innately pick up sort of continuity goofs straight away on first viewing i'm not one of those people so when i do pick up on them i think wow that must have been really bad for me to pick up <laughs> good, good example towards the end when uh traeger uh sterling k brown's character stood outside the predator ship he isn't wearing sunglasses and nor should he be it's night time <laughs> the, the door of the ship opens he walks inside we cut to an interior view and he's got sunglasses on which he then removes now that for me having you know why are we led to believe that in between being outside the ship and walking through that door a couple of feet he's put sunglasses on for what purpose it is just you know that the editing was was slapdash it was brash loud noisy I thought the humour was completely out of place there were a couple of funny lines but like I said that imaginary fourth hangover film where they're all tripping on acid thinking they're being chased by a big alien yeah sure. that's the sort of film that this was this film doesn't belong within the predator franchise i'm sorry if i come across as just full of venom towards it but i was really sat there for you know the best part of two hours and i gleaned virtually no enjoyment from the film whatsoever and you know i take no pleasure in saying that because you know i'm a massive fan of the first two films and I, you know, I wanted this one to sort of make up for a lot of the misgivings of the 2010 film. Yeah, and I would say there are certain elements to this film. I mean, going for the R rating. I mean, some of the some of the sort of, uh, especially when the, the predator was breaking out, some of the sort of kill shots we were getting and stuff. Like that, it was almost refreshing to see that we were going back to that stage where you know it was okay to show a bit of blood and a bit of gore. But even with that, like you say, it was so sort of sloppily edited that it. It sort of lost a lot of the impact, didn't it? Yeah. And can I just, you know, I'm not going to drone on, but can I just finish off what I've got to say about the film with two quotes of lines from the film? 
The first one is Olivia Munn's character when she looks at the creature and she says, you're one beautiful motherfucker. Oh, yeah, it's tough. <laughs> really? Come on, <laughs> Shane. You were there in the first film. That, you were part of that first film. Why would you go and do this? And the, and the second one, get to the choppers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, come on. And then we look. And <laughs> There's a lot of head shaking going on when I was sat there watching this film, I'm well, going to be honest. The, the, the friend I was with, who I watched with, he actually turned to me and he nudged me and he said, for fuck's sake, really? <laughs> and it was at that point where I actually was consciously aware of the fact that I was slumping in my chair as almost a way of physically getting across. I, I really want to reiterate, I didn't go into this trying to hit it. I saw it at TIFF. I paid like above regular cost for my ticket. <laughs> I saw it with uh, Shane Black and Fred Decker in attendance. They introduced the film. Wow. Like, yeah. you know, I was good to go. Like I was, and this could have been sort of a return to the Predator. I, I think what Shane Black promised is like, you know, it'll be a big film again. It'll be a big mm. franchise, not this like bordering above uh, direct-to-video territory. Yeah. You know, sort of a return to, uh, I, I guess, like Hollywood prominence. But... I don't think it is that, and I mean, maybe it'll do well at the box office. I'm, I'm sure it'll do well enough that you'll have a couple of quiet years, then talk will come about uh, doing another sequel, and it'll be another reimagining or something. Yeah. It won't be a direct sequel to this because, uh, I mean, like, how many films have these like sequel bait endings that never pay off? Oh, okay, uh, yeah, I got to say, sorry, I did say I was finished. What the hell is going on with the the Iron Man suit at the end? Yeah, the Iron Man suit at the end. I thought, because they talk about, like, global warming, and I thought, like, okay, is it going to be, like, a biological agent that'll actually, like, you know, (laughs) half a second, I thought, like, maybe it'll be something that eats carbon in the atmosphere, (laughs) not an Iron Man suit. Or I thought, like, it could be a tease for, like, maybe another Alien vs. Predator film. Hey, we're going to go back to the shared franchise thing because the Alien films are flopping again. Uh, maybe it's going to be an alien that comes out of that uh, container or something like that. But no, it's it's a literal Iron Man suit. Shane Black made up Iron Man. He gives an Iron Man suit. <laughs> well, it was a, it was a poor imitation of War Machine rather than yeah, Iron Man. Do you know? I think I would have been more satisfied if they just done a complete sort of left turn. And when that pod opened, it'd be the one thing that we've actually seen fare best against the Predator. Adrian Brody's character. Yeah, could have been, yeah. That would have yeah. been, like, that been pretty know, cool. There's enough callbacks in the film to the other films. There's even uh, callbacks to Alien vs. Predator. Like, they have uh, St. Olathe's um, spear with the alien tail, like, on the wall. Yeah. Like, there's enough fan service. Like, why not? Yeah. You know, if you can't get Schwarzenegger and you can't get uh, Danny Glover, like, you know, and both of those guys are getting up there in years anyway... Uh, you know, why not get Adrian Brody back? Well, the, the, the original ending, Schwarzenegger sort of bailed on it, didn't he? Because he wanted a bigger part. The original ending was supposedly Olivia Munn and... Um, I can't remember Boyd Holbrook. Boyd, Boyd Holbrook. And then a, a chopper landing and Dutch getting out saying, I need you guys, I need you, you have to come with me. And, no, he, and, he was and, not to do this. <laughs> and then by all accounts, he was going to say, the, the kid was going to say, can I come? And he was going to say, you're the most important thing. And that was the only part that Arnie was going to be in. Mm. But, you know, when you get the impression with Arnie, who's at the stage of life now where it's like, oh yeah, we're going to do another Terminator film. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> when he's turning it down, he, he sort of sets alarm bells ringing, doesn't he? I, I can't say that I think the Predator franchise is not in as bad a shape as the Terminator franchise. Oh God, I would not, no. Well, I, I, after the last maybe film, the new one, even... we'll turn it around, but uh, the last mm-hmm. uh, one, Genesis with a Y, I thought like, yeah. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> I'll, I'll take Predator over Terminator Genesis. <laughs> 
I think the why is the, 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 the sort of thing you should concentrate on there. Why why do this? Yeah. <laughs> Just the why. Why, why? Tell me the why. <laughs> so, guys, I think there's, there's no... We're, we're not going to pull this one back no. now. Um, I think we'll, we'll draw things to a close just by wrapping it up with some scores out of 10. Neil, I'll start with you. Oh, it, you know, if this was just a generic sort of alien film, I'd score it 5 out of 10. Considering it's going to be part of the sort of Predator legacy, it's going to be a 4 out of 10 for me. I'm going to go one less. I, I just gained little to no enjoyment from it whatsoever. I think it's a complete mess of a film. I take no pleasure in saying this because I am a big fan of Shane Black. He's, he's made, I think, four four theatrical films altogether. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Iron Man, Iron Man 3. three. And what's the other and, one? Uh, nice Guys. And, and Nice Guys. Uh, all of which range yep. from good to great films. Mm-hmm. This... No, it's got certain Shane Black hallmarks of the, the comedy which I think are pushed to an extreme and actually become a big part of the the problems with the film that I've got. I didn't like it at all. For me, it's got to be a three out of 10. Martin? I think I gave it a two out of five on Letterboxd, which should translate to a four out of 10, but I think I'm with you on the three out of 10. (laughs) I I do want to ask though, uh, if you guys want to talk a little bit about what what, what we would like from the future of these films, or if we have any uh, sequel ideas or anything like that, maybe. Uh, I, I'm, I'm done now, Martin. I, I think it's it's a okay. case of... We, we've seen the creature so much now. It's like once once you've seen the shark from Jaws too many times like you did in the sequel, once you've seen him like jump out and... It you know, looks like a shark. Eh? Yeah. It, it You sort of take away the, the sort of... Um, the, the, the fear factor, the, the 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 tension. It's like the thing of Hitchcock of of the fact that you you see a ticking bomb under a table, and you know you it's not the explosion that is the thing you're worried about, but it's the the fact that you know your, your characters aren't aware of this. There, it, it's about ramping up the tension. And once you've seen this this creature sort of laid bare, like we have in this film, I, I think there's there's nowhere further to go without damaging the franchise. I, I don't want to see any more Predator films, much like I don't want to see any more Alien view. films, and I don't want to see any more Terminator films. Yeah, I, I gotta echo that really. I mean, if you know, if I was in a sort of lovely position where I could come up with concepts of films and be paid millions of dollars to do it, I'd have probably come up with the idea of Predators uh, being the sort of ideal spin-off. That didn't really work, no. so I, I don't see where you can go with this franchise now, really. Well, I mean, I always felt that what seemed like an obvious route after the second film is doing a Predator period film, but uh, <laughs> that's just me. Well, I mean, like, there's so many uh, interesting times and places. Like, a lot of the comics have done that. You know, I thought you, you could put a Predator in a period setting and, like, have old-fashioned uh, weapons and make something sort of engaging and exciting out of that. Or, like, there's real historical places. Like, I, like what I thought would be a good setting for a Predator film is something like uh, King Leopold's Congo, like, set it right at the, you know, late 19th, early 20th century when you had people like Leon Rom taking, you know, skulls as trophies for real and all these chopped off hands and it's like a you know the, this horrible hard violent condition and then you had people coming in to try to prove that there was uh, genocide you know like ex-american slaves or like adventurers like uh Josef conrad who were sort of disillusioned and you know do something like heart of darkness or try to get back to that like jungle gothic you know not necessarily trying to imitate the first film but you know try to restore some of its mystique and grandeur you know instead of this uh trifly b 50s sci-fi kind of a territory that it sort of stumbled itself into yeah the, the, like you say Matt, that's, a, that's a great idea you could have had any number of, of time periods that you know a predator film could have been set in the american civil war world war one world war two mm-hmm. that would have just been you know giving it an interesting new slant but yeah you know in answer to yeah, your question I guess... I, i'm done <laughs> 
You're done. Tag yeah, me out. The- I, I'm, I'm done. So, rounding things up, that's a three from you, Martin, yeah? Uh, a three sure. from me, a four from Neil. So, that's a film 89 verdict for The Predator. A three out of ten. Wow. I never thought I'd be saying that about a yeah. Predator film. <laughs> so, Martin, what, what have you got lined up in way of your uh, podcast, uh, FlixWise, that's coming up? There's a couple of FlixWise episodes coming up. There's uh, one on David and Lisa, which should be up very soon. There's one on some Luis Manuel films which um, should be a pretty interesting deep dive. There's a couple interesting guests are going to be on. There's an episode on um, Children of Paradise, which should be, I'm guessing, out later this month. And I should be back on Wrong Reel before too long. Great. Um, Martin, thank you very much for coming back on. Um, You're always welcome on Film 89. And, uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, you you were you were going to be always going to be the first person we're going to go to to talk about the Predator franchise. <laughs> if you ever have the need to talk about it again, <laughs> I think I think <laughs> we're done. Might be well. I, I wouldn't mind betting we will do because I, I I've got a sneaky feeling that we will get a sequel to this. Uh, fingers I crossed. Feeling, like it's going to be like it might be like six to eight years something like that another one's going to creep along because I mean the, the Predator merchandise I'm sure still sells well I've got enough uh, Predator action well, figures we, that, we've got the other uh, side of it now with the Fox takeover haven't we that um, you know Disney are probably going to be looking to oh, sort of, that's right. you know, milk, milk the cash cow sort of thing so you never know there oh, might man. be Ah, that that's, might be really bad. No, uh, it makes sense. That's why there's an Iron Man suit at the end of the Predator. There yeah. you go. Uh, yeah. uh, and at the moment, uh, to- Tony Stark's in space at the end of Infinity War. Maybe on the way back to Earth. Stop now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, a few more things I'd just like to say before we wrap up is the announcement of the winner of the competition that we started a few months back, whereby we were going to give someone the opportunity to come on Film 89 and have their own episode to pick uh, the own subject of their choice to discuss with, uh, well, whoever's whoever's recording on the night, I suppose. And we've had a look at, basically, um, the people who have been doing their best uh, or, or kindest efforts to promote the, the podcast on the website. There's been a few people who, unfortunately, by right of association, have been disqualified. One of those is Jacob Rivera. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sad to say, Jacob, that as much as you've done an incredible effort of promoting us, as you always do, you were never eligible because effectively you are part of the Film 89 family and you are going to be. Jacob anyway. You're coming on soon anyway yeah. to, to discuss a certain Christmas film. You, you'd already won, but um, it, it came down to a few people who've really made a sterling effort in promoting us on Facebook, Twitter, and I'm happy to announce that Chris Bynan is the winner. He's already aware, I've already been in touch, and he's going to be coming on to discuss one of his favourite films, but he has said he's going to delay it until next year because next year is going to be a big anniversary for that film. So Chris Bynan is going to be coming on to discuss a certain film that uh, has an anniversary in 2019. Um, I'd also like to say thanks to everyone for making episode 15 um, one of our most popular episodes after pretty much a month off of the Film 89 podcast. I'm not going to apologise for that. Again, it's just unfortunate with the school holidays we weren't able to record, but last week's episode was one of our most popular episodes, so thanks everyone for that. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Martin, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you on social media? Uh, The best place is probably on Twitter, at MovieGessler. Fantastic. Um, And also, please keep an eye out for um, uh, our favourite podcast, aside from our own, is uh, Wrong Reel. And one of the Film 89 crew, Steve Amos, is going to be on an episode very shortly. He's probably going to be airing, just as this episode does, where he and James Hancock discuss uh, Francois Truffaut's film, Day for Night. So please keep an eye out for that one. That should be a great chat. Neil, where can people find you if they want to speak to you on social media? Uh, You can either contact me directly through the site or Twitter at Neil underscore Gaskin. 
And you can reach us all at Film89UK on Facebook and Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. Thank you very much, everyone. Hope you've enjoyed the episode. Uh, we'll see you all soon. Uh, we've got a few good episodes planned with some guests that have been a long time in the waiting. So, yeah, th- thanks, everyone. And as usual, stay safe, stay happy. Get to the chopper. I mean, stay classy. <laughs> Ha <laughs>